BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. How do you deal with something like the Holocaust when it's all over and done with? On today's episode, part two of our coverage of the Holocaust, perpetrated against the Jewish people and other minorities by Nazi Germany, we cover the fallout of one of humankind's most massive atrocities and the many ways in which people have tried to understand it in the years since. After World War II, the victorious allies were left with a massive responsibility, not only occupying much of war-torn Europe and making sure hundreds of thousands of Europeans didn't succumb to starvation and anarchy, but also making sure that the Nazis were properly held accountable for their crimes. The Allies felt that if Germany had any real chance of becoming a free nation again, Nazis needed to be punished, and the German people needed to be shown that they were responsible in part for the Holocaust. But also, to govern a new nation, Germany would need some experienced bureaucrats. And the only Germans who had that experience? Former Nazis. How were the Allies to handle this conundrum? Also, how harshly do you punish a nation for being complicit in something as terrible as the Holocaust, when that same nation is already in ruins? And how do you convince a population that they deserve to be punished when they feel that they're the victims? For many post-war Germans, it was hard to wrap their heads around the fact that the world saw them as evil. To many, they had just been doing their jobs. And it was the Allies who were the real aggressors. It was so hard for many to process what had happened in Germany. Were Germans just evil? How could ordinary people be capable of something so monstrous? Could what took place in Germany happen again? Could it happen somewhere else? We'll explore the ways some writers and thinkers engage with questions like these, and we'll look into how Germany, after occupation, has dealt with its ongoing legacy of the Holocaust. We'll also cover how some people have not tried hard enough to understand the Holocaust. Instead, they've chosen to pretend it just never happened. They've chosen to be Holocaust deniers. Holocaust denial is an especially heinous type of anti-Semitism, a belief in some especially despicable propaganda that emerged after World War II. Fake descriptions of history created with the intention to deny the reality of the systematic mass murder of 6 million Jews by the Nazis and the Allies and their allies, not the Allies, during World War II. Holocaust deniers generally claim that either the Holocaust never happened or that it did happen, but not in the way mainstream historians portray it. 
Sure, some Jews did die, but primarily to disease, like uh, diseases like typhus, not in gas chambers or at the hands of roving murder squads. They also claim that the many, many, many legitimate accounts of the Holocaust are all nothing more than propaganda, lies generated by Jewish people for their own benefit. It's the same type of belief that led to the Holocaust in the first place, that the Jews are manipulative liars who will stop at nothing to control the world. Sadly, some prominent Holocaust deniers are people who used to be actual respected historians, but then for reasons they themselves will only ever fully understand, they took a big left turn in their historical outlook and they found new fame perpetuating their new hateful line of thinking, probably for their own benefit. They were now bold truthers, selling books that mainstream historians are afraid of. Controversy has long helped sales. Holocaust deniers are the worst kind of victim shamers. They deny victims of the Holocaust, survivors of the Holocaust, the right to grieve the fact that, in many cases, everyone or almost everyone else in their family was murdered by Nazis, or the right to claim that they themselves were beaten, starved, imprisoned, or in some cases experimented on by Nazi monsters with medical degrees. We dive into all this madness today. In another, let's remind ourselves of what humanity looks like at its worst so we can remember to try and embody humanity at its best edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Can work wait? Maybe just a few hours? I hope so. We have more interesting info for you this week. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, suck nasty dude getting his ass kicked by COVID this week. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, uh, I love you, Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. And can you finally please bring Yacht Rock season to Coeur d'Alene, Triple M. This has been the grayest, grossest, cold and wet Northwest spring I can remember. Cloudy with a high in the, uh, in, in about the mid-50s, it's been a, has been a good day this spring. <laughs> Come on, Mother Nature, it's almost June. Pull your fucking head out of your ass. Give us some sunshine, some heat. Less heat in the Southwest, more heat in the Northwest. I vote we fire Mother Nature and put someone else in charge of weather for a while. Uh, a couple different announcements I need to make. Uh, first, I, I hope I didn't get anyone sick in Salt Lake City. I have my headphones on instead of my in-ears today because my head is still uh, pretty messed up. I'm on a uh, a lot of different uh, uh, cold medicine right now. Actually, this morning... I messed up and I was groggy and I actually took nighttime medicine instead of daytime. I took both, daytime and nighttime. So this is going to be interesting. Um, But my last day in Salt Lake City, Sunday, I started not feeling good. First thought it was just allergies because I get them pretty good every spring. Then I thought I had a head cold. Then when I got home on Monday, I was, uh, you know, so much more sick, you know, fever, body aches, sense of taste, all messed up, dizzy, so much congestion. Uh, Took a test on Tuesday morning, my birthday actually. uh, And COVID was like, happy birthday, buddy. Uh, so much for celebrations, but I but I do thank those of you who sent me the the cake, the balloons, the banana balloons, the Whipple balloons. More, uh, so nice. I know uh, a bunch of uh, long haul truckers, especially, got together and sent a bunch of stuff over, and I appreciate that so much. You guys are the best. I ended up just staying home, researching, sleeping, taking a ton of medicine, drinking a ton of water, uh, getting really confused, watching the new Batman movie because a, uh, a combo of too many edibles and Nyquil and COVID made me so fucking high and confused. So I don't know what was going on in the second half of that movie. Uh, feeling a little better now as I record this. Able to sneak in the office and not have to breathe near anyone and then sneak back out. Uh, while sick, the most recent episode of Is We Dumb came out with Joe and I announced the end of that show. I explained it in depth on The Secret Suck. But basically, I've just known for a while that I've, uh, you know, just been been stretched too thin. Had, had too much on my plate every week. And that I wouldn't be able to keep that going, you know, a lot longer. For a while now, I've just uh, needed to cut back on content in order to uh, get more rest, stay refreshed, 
you know, uh, be happy, be creating from a place of fun and excitement, sp- spend more time with the family, uh, doing numerous weekly shows. If you don't have enough time to do them properly, it can start to feel like a grind. And if it feels like a grind, it's only a matter of time before the audience, you know, feels you burning out and then it's all over. And so I wanted to get ahead of that. Uh, been too long since I was able to get, you know, regular sleep, work out regularly, just, you know, kind of uh, recharge, take care of myself. Not, not healthy. Uh, and too much time away from the family. Kids, you know, growing up, whether I want them to or not, I keep getting older, whether I want them to or not. You know, I turned uh, I turned 24. So, you know, and of course that's a lie. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, working a ton of hours is just what you got to do to provide for yourself and your family. I don't regret a minute of it, but uh, with the way all of you have been amazing and supported Time Suck and scared to death and, you know, and as we dumb all of it, you know, I, I, I can't rationalize doing three podcasts uh, the same way as I could rationalize doing one when I started. I want to do as we dumb, love it, but I don't need to. And therefore, I can't justify the time away from the family and other life responsibilities the same way. Uh, anyway, I've just been stretched too thin. So, uh, you know, last year I pulled out of Incredible Feet for the same reason. Hoped I could keep three podcasts going, plus, you know, Patreon bonus content, plus stand-up, plus being a good dad, husband, having a life, all that stuff. But it's just not enough hours. Uh, so now I'm hoping that hosting two hours on top of stand-up and helping run a small business won't be too much. I think because we have such a, an amazing team here and we're going to refine things further, I, I think I think I can do it. Uh, so anyways, I wanted to be able to do more with this. We dumb. Joe wanted to do more. He's had a lot of great ideas, but we couldn't do more because I just ran out of hours. But with Joe having Can You Don't to run by himself, you know, he has a co-host, but it's his show. He can create more content if the, if the fans want it. He's not tied to someone who's just always exhausted. You know, that sucks. So it doesn't suck now for him. Now, hopefully I can give time suck and scare to death more attention. He can put, uh, you know, a lot of passion and energy, which he's doing into Can You Don't. Highly recommend you check it out. Looks awesome, the new set. Uh, It's a great show. So you can subscribe to it right now. And then uh, when it comes out, you know, definitely give it a shot. Um, Yeah, Can You Don't's going to be on all the same places that time suck and scare to death and Is We Dumb are on. And Is We Dumb's going to stay up. So I love you dummies. And bad magicians, you can listen to the catalog as many times as you want. And still doing a live as we dumb at the Wet Hot Bad Magic uh, Summer Camp. And it's still going to be awesome. And thank you, Joe Paisy, for uh, doing such a great job constantly. I love you. Love you. Um, yeah, so we're definitely uh, going to be supporting Can You Don't Hear. Uh, on a, on a, a different kind of announcement, one more different kind of one. Uh, yes, most of my stand-up has now been removed from Pandora uh, and SiriusXM, in addition to Spotify. Why? Uh, from what I can understand... The pissing match between streaming platforms and publishing companies and SiriusXM with stand-up. There's some publishing companies wanting stand-up comics to be paid the same way musicians are paid for writing their songs, you know, paid for writing jokes. And it's it's grown pretty contentious from from what I can tell. And there are also lawsuits being waged by other entities against Pandora and other streamers. I have no idea how it's all going to shake out. I've spearheaded 0% of this. I had no idea my shit was going to be taken off. I'm just caught in the middle. No one asked me. No heads up. Uh, I found out from one of Kyle Kinane's Instagram posts. He had his shit taken down too. So uh, Kyle and I got on the phone. And I talked to Chad Daniels as well. He had his shit taken down. Uh, we're all frustrated. None of us want this. And uh, no one is telling us anything. Uh, it seems that everyone is lawyered up. And uh, we just have to wait and see how things uh, shake out. In the meantime, you can still listen to uh, much of my stand-up, all of it, on YouTube. I found that all the albums are uploaded. Thanks to the fans who uh, randomly uploaded. I remember a long time ago, people being like uh, some, I don't know, manager, record label, somebody saying like, hey, do you want us to do a cease and desist? I'm like, no, let them throw throw it up. Throw it up on YouTube. Uh, I don't care how many people throw it up. So thanks for uh, doing that because now it's the best way for other people to get it if they don't want to have to buy the albums. 
And you can still uh, get them from Amazon, iTunes and stuff, from what I understand. And you can still watch uh, specials on Amazon. There's two on Amazon. There's three on Apple TV. So there you go. Wish I owned the rights to all that shit so I could maneuver this changing landscape a little more effectively. But, you know, I don't. I might, I might have to pull a Taylor Swift someday and just re-record my old uh, jokes. And then I would just own those versions. We'll see. I'm thinking about it. Uh, for merch, last thing, uh, in remembrance of Is We Dumb, we do own all, all these episodes and they will remain out as I said on the podcast platforms. We have a Bad Magician shirt featuring all three Bad Magic pods. Are you a time sucker? Space lizard? Creep? Peeper? Are you dummy? Pick up this new tee meant uh, for only the most hardcore listeners to badmagicmerch.com. And that's enough announcements for one show. Hail Nimrod, you beautiful bastards. Uh, thanks for being understanding about all this stuff. I've gotten a lot of cool emails and I'm very excited for all the positive messages about uh, supporting Joe. So I think, it's, I think it's best case. So let's go now to uh, worst case. Let's go to the conclusion of our two-part episode on the Holocaust. Last week, we covered the process, both legal and ideological, that paved the way for Nazis to marginalize, forcibly deport, and finally exterminate German Jews and Jews native to the lands they conquered. Before I say anything more, if you're a new listener, this is not how I sound normally. You probably got that, the COVID, but my, uh, my voice, will just, it's, it's, it's propped up as much as it can be on, on hot tea and honey right now. Uh, as we said last week, the Holocaust was the systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of roughly 6 million European Jews by the Nazi German regime and its allies and collaborators. Before setting on their path of state-sponsored murder, the Nazis falsely accused Jews of causing basically all of Germany's social, economic, political, and cultural problems. In particular, they blamed them for Germany's defeat in World War I and Germany's subsequent economic decline. Anger over the loss of the war and the economic and political crises that followed contributed to increasing amounts of anti-Semitism in German society and to the rise of the Nazi party. But it wouldn't be until the beginning of World War II and the quest for Lebensraum, aka German living space, that the Nazis would start on their project of extermination and concentration camps with, and with roving murder squads. Uh, it's hard to even think about beginning to wrap our heads around this big of a, an event, a tragedy, much less, much less the way we ought to interpret it, but that's what we're going to try and do today. First, we'll cover the trials of the Nazis and the Allies' quest for justice. We'll look into how people came to understand the, how so-called you know, ordinary Germans could become murderous tools of the state. Then we'll look more broadly at post-war Germany and how they've managed to deal with their dark legacy, successful for the most part, but still anti-Semitism a growing problem in Germany, which is obviously concerning. Uh, we'll also look at Holocaust denial, how it is such a terrible example of how not to correctly interpret history. Refusing to face up to something does not lead to healing. This leads to more of the same shit. Uh, so let's go in. Let's let, let's get into all of this. Diving right in today, where we left off last week, the fall of the Third Reich. After the successful Allied invasions of Western France, Germany gathered uh, reserve forces and launched a massive counteroffensive in the Ardennes, which collapsed in January of 1945. At the same time, Soviet forces, closing in from the east, invading Poland, East Prussia. By March, Western Allied forces were crossing the Rhine River, capturing hundreds of thousands of German troops. The Red Army entered Austria. Both fronts then quickly approached Berlin. It was clear to everyone that the end of the war, at least in Europe, was near. Strategic bombing campaigns by Allied aircraft were pounding German territory, sometimes destroying entire cities in a single night. In the first several months of 1945, Germany had put up a fierce defense, but then rapidly lost territory, ran out of supplies, and exhausted any other options. 
In April, Allied forces pushed through the German defensive line in Italy. And on April 25th, 1945, Soviets and American troops met near Torgau, Germany, just 135 kilometers or just 84 miles south of Berlin. The end of the Third Reich came just two weeks later. With the Soviets taking Berlin, right? Adolf Hitler committing suicide on April 30th, and then Germany surrendering unconditionally on all fronts on May 8th. Hitler's planned thousand-year Reich lasted only a dozen years. A dozen incredibly destructive years. Now began the process of trying to figure out how things had gotten so incredibly fucked up in Germany. Though the Nazis had been vanquished by the Allies, the Allies' work was not done when the war was over. Now there was the question of how to deal with the remnants of Nazi Germany. I never really thought about that before in this episode. Not really. You know, what to do with so many high-ranking Nazis who have been directly responsible for one of the world's largest atrocities? An atrocity that could not be blamed under some type of, well, you know, war is hell, crazy shit happens, uh, collateral damage can't always be helped type of reasoning. What the Nazis did with their concentration camps and roving death squads, that had nothing to do with waging war and everything to do with their horrific notions of racial purification and genocide. Hitler, Himmler, uh, Goebbels, uh, three, of the four, uh, three of the four highest ranking Nazis, you know, they'd all committed suicide in the spring of 1945 before they could be brought to trial. But there were still tons of Nazis around, like Hermann Goering, Hermann Goering, equally important as prosecuting uh, Goering and uh, other high-ranking Nazis, as many as they could find, for their crimes against humanity. The Allies also felt that it was important to show the German people what their state had been responsible for in order to sever any remaining emotional ties the average citizen may still have to Nazi Germany. Think about the massive pivot the world wanted this entire nation to make almost immediately. For over a decade, it had been Hitler, Hitler, Hitler right? Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. A constant stream of heavy propaganda. Germans had been living in a culture of total expected devotion to the state. To be a good German, you had to be absolutely loyal to the Nazis. So much pressure to be loyal. Uh, You know, if you were not loyal, you were a traitor and traitors were sent to concentration camps and probably never seen again. And while I'm sure many Germans were thankful to be liberated from this tyrannical regime, you know, a lot of Germans fucking loved the Nazis, were Nazis. They initially were voted into power. They didn't, it wasn't some hostile takeover. Not exactly. You know, I mean, there was, there was a hostile element to it, but there was a lot of people supporting it. You know, they liked the propaganda. It reinforced the stereotypes and attitudes they'd already chosen to adopt prior to Hitler's ascent to the throne. Hitler provided Germans with a scapegoat. They were all too happy in many cases to accept for their interwar period suffering. So many Germans lost their asses in the wake of World War I. The reparations, the sanctions, the hyperinflation destroyed the economy. And Hitler helped them believe all of that was the fault of the Jews. And after a dozen years of propaganda, a dozen years that followed decades of rampant anti-Semitism and centuries of intermittent anti-Semitism, a lot of Germans truly did despise the Jewish people. That doesn't just magically stop with the end of the war and the end of the Nazi party. The Nuremberg trials, 13 trials held between 1945 and 1949, would establish how to hold Nazis, private German businessmen, doctors, and more, accountable for the crimes they had perpetrated against the Jewish people. The city of Nuremberg in the German state of Bavaria was selected as a location for the trials because it, its palace of justice was relatively undamaged by the war and included a large prison area. Additionally, Nuremberg had been the site of annual Nazi, Nazi propaganda rallies. Holding the post-war trials there marked the symbolic end of Hitler's government, the Third Reich. These trials would bring with them a tremendous amount of press coverage, a big, bright investigative light, shined on years of rampant anti-Semitism that had turned preposterously bloody. During these trials, the world would hear how many of the Nazis would claim, uh, how, you know, how many of these Nazis would claim that they had no personal bias against Jewish people. 
They were simply following orders. Prosecutors in the sentences they handed out, which included a total of 37 death sentences, made it clear they would not allow anyone to hide behind that particular shield. The best known of the Nuremberg trials was the trial of major war criminals held from November 20th, 1945 to October 1st, 1946. 24 individuals were indicted, along with six Nazi organizations determined to be criminal, like the Gestapo. During the trials, these German officials and party members were tried and their trials televised, including, you know, Hermann Goering and Martin Bormann. Goering was, in case you forgot, Hitler's personal Froelicher clown, or uh, happy clown, translates to. Whenever Hitler was feeling down, he would summon Goering to his office, and Goering would dance and, you know, tell jokes and sing little ditties. Just really like whatever it took just to kind of, you know, cheer up the Fuhrer was his primary job, you know, which is obviously a pretty evil job. Do not be sad, handsome Fuhrer boy. We are winning the war, handsome Fuhrer boy. Everyone likes your mustache. Everyone knows you have a master German sausage, handsome Fuhrer boy. And you're such a great artist, after Fuhrer boy. The Jews were jealous, and that is why you never got into the art school. They were so jealous of the handsome Fjodor boy. And, and then he'd usually end his little song and dance routines by, uh, by dressing up like Hitler's niece and then just, you know, taking a, a huge shit on Hitler's chest. Uh, n- no one could cheer up the handsome Fjodor boy like Goering. His, his, little, his happy little Frolika clown. And that, of course, is nonsense. Well, I mean, maybe it's not. I mean, I can't prove that any of that, you know, happened, but I can't prove that it didn't happen. Uh, no, according to historical documentation, uh, Goering was, uh, as much as I like to just imagine him uh, in a weird little clown outfit, uh, shitting on Hitler after doing a little dance, he was the commander in chief of the Luftwaffe, German Air Force, founder of the Gestapo in 1933, minister of the economic four-year plan, Reichsmarschall, Reichsmarschall, uh, senior to the Wehrmacht commanders, and in 1941 designated by Hitler as his successor and second command in all his offices. Previously, an ace fighter pilot in World War I, uh, decorated with the Blue Max, and commander of the fighter wing led by von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron. Martin Boren, Bormann, excuse me, was head of the Nazi party chancellery, chancellery, Jesus, chancellery, a role once called deputy Führer. Uh, he was Hitler's personal private secretary, controlling all info passed to and from Hitler, and controller of all personal access to Hitler. It final approval over all legislation, and de facto control over all domestic matters. He was next to Hitler, Himmler, and Goering, and uh, Goebbels, the fifth highest ranking Nazi. And he was tried in absentia. Uh, the Allies were able to, unable to locate him after the war, and there were rumors that he'd either escaped to South America or to Russia where he was working for Stalin. Uh, Goering, Bormann, and other defendants were allowed to choose their own lawyers, and the most common defense strategy they employed was that the crimes they were accused of, as defined in the London Charter, were examples of ex post facto law. Ex post facto law means that you're being charged with a crime that was not actually a crime when the crime took place, wasn't illegal. Two clauses in the U.S. Constitution forbid ex post facto laws. And you may think, how the fuck was the Holocaust not illegal? But there was actually no international law in place at the time that specifically banned what the Nazis did. Which actually makes a strange kind of sense. I mean, it would be weird to have some pre-World War II law that said something to the effect of, you know, and according to Statute 14 of Code 6 of Article D of the International Code of War Crimes, it is expressly forbidden and punishable in an international court to build up a collection of death camps connected by train tracks featuring gas chambers and crematoriums for the wholesale slaughter of an entire race of people that has nothing to do with war effort. I don't think anybody really saw that coming. Uh, despite no specific law against the uh, Holocaust, uh, Britain's Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, and others claimed that the guilt of the accused war criminals 
was, quote, so black that they fell outside of any judicial process. The Allies established laws and procedures for the Nuremberg trials with the London Charter of the International Military Tribunal, uh, August 8, 1945. Among other things, the Charter defined three categories of crimes. Crimes against peace, right, including planning, preparing, starting, or waging wars of aggression, or wars in violation of international agreements. War crimes, including violations of customs or laws of war, including improper treatment of civilians and prisoners of war. And then the big one that we've uh, all become familiar with now, crimes against humanity, including murder, enslavement, or deportation of civilians or persecution on political, religious, or racial grounds. Obviously, that last one heavily pertains to the uh, Holocaust. They determined that civilian officials as well as military officers could be accused of these crimes. The suggested method of justice for access leaders by top British officials, including Winston Churchill, was death by firing squad without a trial. I like Churchill's sentiment, but execution without a trial, probably never a great precedent to set. Pretty horrific, slippery slope to start sledding down. Uh, Both the Soviet Union and the U.S. insisted on some sort of war tribunal to legitimize the punishments, whether this insistence was for political or moral reasons, or a mix of the two, still a matter of debate. Once the trials began, besides claiming ex ex post facto law, The defendants also found other ways to claim their innocence. Another defense was that the trial was a form of victor's justice. The Allies were applying a harsh standard of crimes committed by Germans and leniency to crimes committed by their own soldiers. And that for sure does happen in the aftermath of uh, almost every war. Right, the losers are put on trial, the victors' uh, war crimes largely ignored. Uh, For example, in the aftermath of the Malmody Massacre, when German soldiers executed dozens of unarmed American POWs, A written order from the HQ of the 328th U.S. Army Infantry Regiment dated December 21st, 1944, stated, no SS troops or paratroopers will be taken prisoner, but will be shot on sight. U.S. Army Major General Raymond Huft also gave instructions to his troops to take no prisoners when they crossed the Rhine in 1945. And after the war, he admitted, when reflecting on the war crimes he authorized, if the Germans had won, I would be on trial at Nuremberg instead of them. And U.S. historian Stephen Ambrose, noted for writing biographies on U.S. Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, once stated, I've interviewed well over a thousand combat veterans. Only one of them has said he shot a prisoner. But perhaps as many as one third of the veterans related incidents in which they saw other GIs shooting unarmed German prisoners who had their hands up. So again, though, uh, very, uh, very different. Even shooting uh, captured soldiers, very different from rounding up millions of non-combatants literally pulling them out of their homes, men, women, children, systematically executing them, experimenting on on them, right? All because of their race. In the end, an international tribunal found that all but three of the initial 24 Nazis uh, defendants were guilty, 12 sentenced to death, one in absentia, and the rest given prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life behind bars. Hermann Goering, Hitler's designated successor, right? The clown guy, head of the Luftwaffe, Uh, He committed suicide the night before his scheduled execution, had a cyanide capsule he'd hidden in the jar of some skin medication. Uh, Martin Borman, sentenced to death in absentia, he was actually already dead. Uh, He'd also eaten a cyanide capsule. Nazi hunters finally determined uh, in 1972 that he'd committed suicide in May of 1945 when his remains were uncovered, identified, and examined. Another man who would also be sentenced to death, the operator of Auschwitz himself, Rudolf Huss ran the infamous death camp from May 4th, 1940 to November, 1943. Then again, from May 8th, 1944 to January 18th, 1945. 
he would be hanged in 1947 at the age of 45. Uh, he'd been brought up in a strict Catholic home. At one time, he considered joining the priesthood. Fought in World War I for Germany, joining the army at the age of only 15. Became the youngest German non-commissioned officer by the end of the war at the age of just 17. Rose all the way to the rank of sergeant in chief. Uh, contracted malaria. Wounded three times as a teen fighting the Ottomans. Uh, in combat, you know, was awarded the Iron Crescent, the Iron Cross for bravery in battle. Rode his horse home to Bavaria from Damascus, where he was when the war ended. He seemed by all accounts to be an awesome young man with high moral fiber. But then in 1922, when he was just 21, something changed. He was disillusioned with life, saddened by what had happened to Germany in the wake of World War I, where he'd fought so valiantly, and the Nazis seduced him. Heard a speech by Hitler, joined the Nazi party, renounced his faith, renounced his affiliation with the Catholic Church by 1923, already killing people on Hitler's behalf. One of the Fuhrer's earliest loyal thugs. After testifying at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, Huss was then put on trial by Poland's Supreme National Tribunal. Most of his fellow perpetrators of the Holocaust denied their involvement, but he did not. He denied nothing. While he awaited his execution, uh, he wrote his memoirs, actually expressed remorse for his crimes and then was hanged near the old Gestapo headquarters at Auschwitz. And uh, his death was Poland's last public execution. The Nuremberg trial is important for several reasons. Never before had trials for war crimes and crimes against humanity been covered internationally like this. The trials importantly acknowledged that the crimes committed by the Nazis were not done by some intangible entity or inhuman monsters. They were committed by men, ordinary men who had done terrible, almost unthinkable things. By establishing that individuals were responsible for crimes of the state, or, you know, crimes of a state, the Allied powers hoped to prevent such crimes from occurring again in the future. As Nuremberg prosecutor Whitney Harris explained, for the first time in history, absolute rulers were brought to account before the law. There was no longer any state or any ruler of a state who can claim total immunity from the law. The age of empires has passed. At Nuremberg, we put tyranny on trial. Uh, that makes me think of Putin. Could he end up on trial for war crimes he's currently committing? Not likely, but also not impossible. I mean, how great would that be to watch? Uh, in addition, much of the information that we now know about the Holocaust was uh, disclosed during these trials, including reports regarding the more than 6 million people systematically killed by the Nazis. Robert Jackson, chief U.S. prosecutor and future Supreme Court justice, declared, unless record was made, future generations would not believe how horrible the truth was. These trials also set a new standard for international cooperation between the Allies, both in fighting their enemies and dealing with the damage afterwards. The matter of prosecuting former Nazis, reminding the world of their horrors, did not end with the Nuremberg trials. More trials continued right up to the present, still continue. Trials going on right now. Uh, the most famous trial following the Nuremberg trials was probably the trial of Adolf Eichmann. It took place in Jerusalem almost 15 years after the end of the World War II. Uh, who was Adolf Eichmann? Uh, he was, in case you don't remember, he was uh, Hitler's personal micro-penis handler and massager. It was Eichmann's job to try and make Hitler's wiener bigger, or at the very least, make sure that the Fuhrer's tiny penis didn't get smaller as the Fuhrer aged. Uh, to this end, he experimented with all kinds of, uh, you know, radical techniques. Sometimes you give the Fuhrer a, a bath, soak the micro-Fuhrer for 45 plus minutes. Then when it was nice and spongy, he would, he would just kind of steadily tug on it with a pair of tongs. And uh, just try and stretch it out as he would blow dry it, hoping that, you know, they would make the stretch more permanent. Other times he'd put it in his mouth for 45 plus minutes, steadily suck on it, not in a way that would lead to uh, ejaculation. It wasn't sexual. 
just in a steady way that again, he hoped he could stretch it out. Uh, he also tried tying water balloons of different weight to the tip of Hitler's tiny penis to let gravity pull into a longer, hopefully more satisfying shape. He tried using a vacuum cleaner uh, attachment to stretch it. Sometimes even uh, tried putting on high heels and dressing up like Hitler's niece and then just stomping the fuck out of it, hoping that that would somehow make it bigger. Perhaps the scar tissue would make it appear larger and then, you know, and then shit on the, the Fuhrer. And uh, that's how the Fuhrer would come. And of course, uh, that's crazy talk, probably, but maybe not. Again, I don't have evidence of that, but I also don't have evidence that that did not happen, you know? Uh, no, what we do have evidence of is that Adolf Eichmann was the man tasked with facilitating and managing the logistics involved in the mass deportation of millions of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps in Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe during World War II by Reinhard Heydrich. Heydrich, man, not real familiar with him prior to all this, but that was a real wicked motherfucker. He was a man uh, many Nazi historians have called the darkest figure in the entire Nazi regime. Uh, a man Hitler himself called the man with the iron heart, one of the principal architects of the Holocaust. Something, something really darkly funny to me about Hitler being weirded out by a guy, you know, maybe, maybe being too heartless. Himmler, what do you think about Heydrich? I mean, I, I like him, but he gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know? When I asked him if we should speed up the killing of the Jews, he made a noise like a, like a man makes when he's coming. I mean, we're talking about the taking of people's lives and it seems to arouse him. I just, I just think it all just seems a, a little bit fucked up to me, you know? I mean, sure, a little bit of respect, right? Uh, Heydrich was the founding head of the Zekerheitsdienst, uh, Zekerheitsdienst, uh, an intelligence organization charged with seeking out neutralizing resistance to the Nazi party via arrest, deportations, and murders. He helped organize the Night of Broken Glass, the series of coordinated attacks against Jews, November 9th and 10th, 1938. He was directly responsible for the Einsatzgruppen, right? Those roving murder squads that traveled in the wake of advancing German armies and Soviet Union and murdered more than 2 million people by mass shooting and some uh, mobile gassing unit uh, squads, you know, uh, or uh, vehicles. Uh, killed an, an estimated 1.3 million Jews. And then he was assassinated by some Czechoslovakians in 1942. And before he died, he loved Eichmann. And he put Eichmann in charge of making the system of transporting Jews to their deaths in concentration camps as efficient as possible. And Eichmann was very good at that. Following the war, U.S. troops had captured Eichmann, but then in 1946, he escaped from a prison camp. They weren't guarding that closely because they didn't know that he was Eichmann. He used forged papers, uh, identified himself as Otto Eichmann, uh, a random lowly soldier, not an architect of the apocalypse or architect of the Holocaust. Well, Holocaust, apocalypse, there's similarities. Uh, After living in various uh, places in Germany under the false identity, this false identity for several years, he made it to Austria, then to Italy, then to Argentina, and he he became Ricardo Clement in 1950. His family joined him in Argentina in 1952, got a job with the Mercedes-Benz, you know, factory, became a department head, also didn't keep his mouth shut about being a Nazi. Met up with several other former Nazis in Argentina, gave a series of interviews to a Nazi journalist, Wilhelm Sassen, and that would expose him enough to lead to his arrest by Israeli Secret Service, May 11th, 1960. And then he was taken to Israel to stand trial. Uh, real quick, before going into details of his trial, why did Argentina become such a popular destination for former Nazis after World War II? According to a 2012 article in the Daily Mail, German prosecutors who examined secret files from Brazil and Chile discovered that as many as 9,000 Nazi officers and collaborators from other countries escaped from Europe to find sanctuary in South American countries. Brazil took in between 1,500 and 2,000, between 500 and 1,000 settled in Chile. Chile, 
However, by far the largest number, as many as 5,000, relocated to Argentina. Why? Well, because Argentinians have long been known to be the most evil people on the face of the earth. Uh, They're not people. They're monsters. They're mostly vampires and werewolves and some zombies. Uh, That's why I've never been there, because I'm fucking scared. It's just a dystopian, just kind of nightmare full of just, you know, people eating each other, uh, babies getting fucking, you know, spears thrown at them. It's just, it's hell on earth, and it always has been. It's cursed. It's a cursed, it's a cursed land. No. Uh, after Argentina's victory in their uh, war of independence from Spain in the early 19th century, they heavily promoted European settlement due to a low population that they felt made them vulnerable to losing their independence. Uh, 1845 still had less than a million people. A century later, 1945, they'd have over 15 million people, thanks largely to a lot of Europeans immigrating there, including hundreds of thousands of Germans. Many came uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And today, there's more than 3.5 million German Argentines in a nation of a little over 45 million people. Due to the hundreds of thousands of recent German immigrants who lived in the country during World War II, Argentina maintained close ties with Germany and remained neutral for much of World War II. And in the years after the end of the war, Argentine president Juan uh, Perón, he secretly ordered diplomats and intelligence officers to establish escape routes, so-called rat lines, through ports in Spain and Italy to smuggle thousands of former SS officers and Nazi party members out of Europe and into his country. As with numerous other fascist-leaning uh, South American leaders, Peron had been drawn to the ideolo- ideologies of Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler while serving as a military attache in Italy during the early years of World War II. Pretty cringy, I know. The Argentine president also sought to recruit those Nazis with particular military and technical expertise that he believed could help his country, much like the U.S. did, and the Soviets did uh, when they poached scientists from the Third Reich to assist them in the Cold War, right? We covered the U.S. doing that in SUC-227, Operation Paperclip. And that is why Eichmann and thousands of other former SS officers made it to Argentina. It was a nation full of German com- uh, communities, a nation led by a man who was a fan of Hitler, went out of his way to make it easy for Nazis to make it to his country. But then Peron overthrown 1945, uh, excuse me, 1955, and suddenly it was easier to, you know, sneak in, poach, former Nazis, and extradite them back to Europe or to the Middle East for trials. Uh, Eichmann's trial would put the Holocaust back in the international spotlight, also controversial. His trial before Jewish judges by a Jewish state that did not exist until three years after the Holocaust gave rise to more accusations of ex-post facto justice. Some called for an international tribunal to try Eichmann. Others wanted him tried in Germany. Israel was like, suck our fucking dicks. Uh, We're going to try him here. And can you blame him? Under questioning, Eichmann actually claimed not to be an anti-Semite. He said that he disagreed, you know, with a lot of his fellow Nazis' leanings. I've always, I've always loved the Jews. It, it breaks my heart. When the system I was paid to create uh, has them rounded up faster than ever before, sent to their deaths in greater numbers than ever before. But, you know, Hitler, he, he paid well. And money's money. You know, it all spends the same. It doesn't know where it comes from. What do you, what do, you do? Rent doesn't pay itself. Uh, Eichmann claimed that the, he subscribed to Jewish period, periodicals. Right, he's a nice guy. He, uh, he bought the Encyclopedia Judaica. 22-volume encyclopedia of the Jewish peoples, you know, end of, uh, or end of Judaism. Moreover, he claimed to have uh, read notable Jewish writer Theodore Herzl's The Jewish State, said that he never read Hitler's Mein Kampf, nor any other anti-Semitic treaties. What a fucking weirdo. Do you think this would work? Yes, on the one hand, I played a major part in transporting millions of Jews, including the women and the babies, to their deaths. But I also am a very big fan of Bob Dylan. 
I, I love all along the Watchtower. So how, how much can I really hate the Jews? I, I think Sandy Koufax is a, a wonderful pitcher, the best, the best it ever played. Uh, and yes, Bob Dylan is Jewish. Uh, birth name, Robert Allen Zimmerman. Eichmann portrayed himself as nothing more than an obedient bureaucrat who was just merely, you know, carrying out his assigned duties. Yeek. As if his assigned duties weren't, you know, incredibly immoral, like, like next level immoral, an unprecedented level of evil. Uh, as for the charges against him, Eichmann maintained that he had uh, not violated any law, you know, and that uh, he was the kind of man who cannot tell a lie. He was a good guy who just happened to get a job working for somebody who just really wanted to kill all the Jews and Romani peoples and homosexuals, political dissidents, ethnic Poles, ethnic Slavs, etc., etc. Is it a crime to have a huge asshole for a boss? In this case, yeah. Yeah, it is actually. Uh, denying responsibility for the mass killings, he said, I couldn't help myself. I had orders, but I had nothing to do with that business. What a weird fucking mental space. Yes, I fucking helped so much, but I had nothing to do with it at the same time. Eichmann even said he had, uh, he had personal discomfort hearing about the workings of, uh, of a gassing installation. He said, I, I was horrified. My nerves are not strong enough. I can't listen to such things, such things without affecting me. Uh, of his observation of a gassing van in operation at uh, Chelmno, he said, I didn't look inside. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. What I saw and heard was enough. The screaming and uh, I was I was so shaken and so on. There's too much, you guys. But you know, you know, he kept doing it. So he must not have been that shaken. Never once tried to escape Nazi Germany to help the Allies put a stop to all that. Uh, never even tried to go into hiding. You know, never tried to get away from it all. Prosecutors pointed out that Eichmann did a lot more than merely follow orders in coordinating an operation of this scale. Uh, he was a resourceful, proactive manager who relied on a variety of strategies and tactics to secure scarce cattle cars and other equipment uh, used to deport Jews at a time when that equipment uh, was, you know, scarce. There were shortages threatening uh, the German war effort. He repeatedly, cleverly devised innovative solutions to overcome obstacles. He didn't just help transport Jews to death camps. He made their deaths, uh, you know, their transports quicker, more efficient, more cost-effective. He's very good at all that. Eichmann's trial made a lot of people uh, watching and paying attention very uncomfortable. He wasn't the blatantly evil monster they wanted him to be. He looked like he could be your neighbor or your dad. Uh, maybe, maybe he could be you. Many were puzzled to see this weak, seemingly spineless, you know, man on trial for some of the most heinous crimes of the 20th century. How could someone so fucking boring, so mundane, be so evil? This reaction led Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt German-born American who covered the trial for the New Yorker to coin a now infamous description of him, the banality of evil. In her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, she said she found Eichmann not even sinister when she first saw him. She said the deeds were monstrous, but the doer, quite ordinary, commonplace, neither demonic nor monstrous. Aaron pointed out that Eichmann knew what he was doing, though. He wasn't stupid. Well, not exactly. He was kind of stupid, but sadly, a very common kind of stupid. She wrote that he just was completely devoid of any critical thinking. He was a great worker, great soldier in the worst of ways. You know, he did what he was asked without question. He exhibited an almost complete lack of ability to have independent critical thought, right? Just the worst kind of follower. She wrote, the only specific characteristic one could detect in his past, as well as in his behavior during the trial and the preceding police examination was something entirely negative. It was not stupidity, but a curious, quite authentic inability to think. She added, when confronted with situations for which such routine procedures did not exist, he, Eichmann, was helpless, and his cliche-ridden language 
produced on the stand, as it had evidently done in his official life, a kind of macabre comedy. Clichés, stock phrases, adherence to conventional standardized codes of expression and conduct have the socially recognized function of protecting us against reality. That is against the claim on our thinking, uh, you know, attention that all events and facts make by virtue of their existence. Does that personality profile remind you of anyone alive today? Maybe someone you know? Maybe someone you're related to? It does me. People all too happy just to go along with the crowd. Even when the crowd is definitely heading in an evil direction. People so good at focusing on the good aspects of whatever organization they're a part of or that they support. Also so good at ignoring or rationalizing away the bad parts of the same organization. I mean, yeah, you know, he's, he's really racist, but uh, so good at repairing the German economy. You know, you can't be all good. I mean, yeah, sometimes he has disabled children put to death, but also giving away free property. Where did that free property come from? Well, we don't speak of such things. Some people so good at avoiding how morally repugnant some of their actions are. So good at hiding behind catchphrases and cliches. I mean, should we have killed millions of Jews? No, but you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Does it seem bad now to think of clouds of smoke billowing from crematoriums burning thousands and thousands of innocent Jews? Of course, but every cloud has a silver lining. All in all in Eichmann, Hannah Arendt didn't see a monster, even most of the Nazis as monsters. She saw mostly men who were evil mainly because they didn't know how to think critically, because they did what they were told to do and wanted to excel at it and get promotions and raises. It was unfortunately the same thing to them you know, as if they were locating foods, if, if they were locating food supplies, transporting animals, or shipping off people, innocent people, to their deaths. It was all just work, all part of the war effort, all for the glory of Germany. They were told what they did was righteous, and even though it certainly wasn't, they believed that message. They chose to. They made the easiest, most natural choice you can make when being told by your superiors that you've done a good job. Just believe it, without question. All of this to Aaron was actually far worse than simply being a genocidal maniac because it meant that basically anyone, if they let down their critical thinking guard, right, they could become a Nazi. It wasn't just a bunch of bloodthirsty sociopaths. It was people just like you, people like me, people who, you know, just stopped to think critically, people who just accepted propaganda at face value. It makes me think of people today who are happy just to get their news via, you know, Facebook, people who don't check sources, people who just think, yep, sounds about right, and then run with some bullshit, sometimes dangerous bullshit, and spread it to others, people who don't just take time to think. Eichmann's trial lasted from April 11th to December 15th, 1961, and in the end, he was sentenced to death, the only death sentence ever imposed by an Israeli court. And he was hanged on May 31st, 1962. Punishing Nazis, finding them accountable for their crimes, as I mentioned earlier, continues today. The most recent of the Nazi trials took place October 2021, 76 years after the end of World War II, when a former excuse me, concentration camp guard went to trial for assisting in the murder of 3,518 prisoners at the Sachsenhausen camp near Berlin. Ten years before, the conviction of former SS guard John uh, Demjonjuk set a precedent enabling prosecutors to charge people for aiding and abetting a wider scope of Nazi crimes in World War II. Until then, direct participation in murder had to be proven. Identified as Joseph S. because of German privacy laws, the 101-year-old defendant led into a specially adapted sports hall at a prison uh, in Braden, Brandenburg an der Havel when the trial began amid strict security. He arrived outside the court in a wheelchair, clutching a briefcase, and with the aid of a walking frame, he was fucking faking it, being feeble for sympathy. Once inside the courthouse, he fucking tossed it aside, flexed his guns, right? Screamed, Heil Hitler! 
Then four law enforcement officers were needed to restrain me. Fucking uppercutted the first two. Fucking Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. You know, they had to restrain him from attacking a Jewish family, tried to fucking eat a baby. No, he wasn't faking shit. He was a fucking 101 years old. He probably didn't even remember being a Nazi. I uh, shielded his face with a blue file. Stop photographers uh, getting a view. Joseph S. had lived in Brandenburg uh, in the area for years, reportedly as a locksmith, uh, had not spoken publicly about the trial, or he has not. He was 21 when he first became a guard at Sockenhausen, 1942. Tens of thousands of people died at the camp in, uh, oh man, Oranienburg, north of Berlin, including resistance fighters, Jews, political opponents, homosexuals, and prisoners of war. During the trial, the prosecutor gave details of mass shootings as mur- and murders by gas, as well as through disease and exhaustion. Trial was especially important for 17 co-plaintiffs who included survivors of Sockenhausen. One of them was Christoffel Heiser, just six years old when he saw his father last. Uh, Johann Heinrich Heider, Heiser, Jesus, was one of 71 Dutch resistance fighters shot dead in the camp. Murder isn't destiny. It's not a crime that can be legally erased by time, he told the German newspaper Berliner Zeitung. Leon Schwarzenbaum, a 101-year-old survivor of Sockenhausen, said this was the last trial for my friends and acquaintances and my loved ones who were murdered and he hoped it would end in a final conviction. Poor Leon died earlier this year. Uh, nobody knows why why he died. Doesn't uh, Might have something to do with the fact he was fucking 101 years old. This is unbelievable. Joseph F. will uh, will find out if he's going to uh, prison or not in June. The prosecution is seeking a five-year sentence, which uh, will probably be you know a, a life sentence, I would imagine. Joseph, the very rare lower-level Nazi to ever face prosecution following World War II. There were 3,000 guards at uh, Stutthof concentration camp alone. Only 50 were ever found, tried, and convicted of anything. Less actually punished. One of them, Bruno Day, was convicted of complicity in mass murder, was given a suspended sentence. The matter of prosecuting everyone who worked at a concentration camp or otherwise aided in the murders of uh, Jews has been difficult, mainly because of uh, there's, you know, there's so fucking many of them. I think this speaks to how utterly horrific the Holocaust was. Also, how important it is not to forget what happened. Despite Nazis still being prosecuted for crimes against humanity to this day, it's still hard for many to accept that it really did happen. Let's dive now into post-war Germany. Look at how Germans developed in their thinking over the years about the Holocaust. Many people have commended Germany's uh, efforts to recognize and deal with the effects of the Holocaust. To be sure, it seems uh, hard to reconcile that the Germany of today, an economic powerhouse supporting the EU, continuing to help the current Ukrainian refugee crisis, how that could be the same, you know, uh, nation as the Germany of the 1940s. Today, Germany is incredibly progressive. Same-sex marriage, legal. Adoption rights for same-sex couples, legal. Uh, job discrimination based on sexual preference, gender identity, illegal nationwide, right? They're incredibly tolerant. German penal code prohibits uh, publicly denying the Holocaust, disseminating Nazi propaganda, both off and online. That includes sharing images uh, such as swastikas, wearing an SS uniform, making statements in support of Hitler. They're pretty fucking serious when it comes to, uh, you know, not tolerating intolerant assholes. Today, Germany, one of the world's most influential trusted nations. Many uh, view the country as the linchpin of the European Union. In a 2014 BBC World Service poll, Germany ranked first in popularity, with 60% of the international community rating it very positively. How has living in the shadow of Hitler become uh, been overcome? Uh, today in Germany, the term is doing my best to pronounce this 26-letter long linguistic fucking abomination. Vergangen heights of Jesus Christ. Vergangen heights bewältigung. This fucking it looks like somebody just too much letters against the wall, but it means working off the past. 
current German culture and politics remain deeply informed by German history. Uh, quite simply, many in Germany refuse to ignore the sins of their past. They don't hide from the Nazi era, and I find that incredibly admirable and healthy. When has pretending you haven't done something shitty or pretending your ancestors or forefathers haven't done something shitty really, truly helped anything? You can still be proud of the present, be proud of who you are and know that you're a good person and also know that some of the branches of your family tree were filled with people who did fucking horrible things. Their shame shouldn't be your burden, but also shouldn't be something you feel like you have to hide from. You have to be embarrassed to talk about, right? All of the arts, including TV and film, regularly refer to and treat Nazi history. The country pauses to perform what sociologists call public rites of repentance around events such as the liberation of Auschwitz, uh, Kreisternacht, right? The night of broken glass, the end of the war. Fucking love it. I think we can learn uh, from the Germans here in America. They've done a much better job of, uh, of repenting for the horrors of the Holocaust than we have repenting for the horrors of plantation slavery, Jim Crow laws, all the uh, other deeply racist bullshit that followed the Civil War. I just feel like Americans are less prone to apologizing for mistakes of the past than many other nations. Why is that? I have fucking no idea. Uh, we also seem to often admire those who refuse to apologize as if stubbornly avoiding your fuck-ups is some kind of positive trait. And I do not understand that either. Definitely not how I was raised. Uh, then there's the iconography, recognizing the mistakes of the past. The Holocaust Memorial sits at the center of uh, reunified Berlin. There are also the famous stumbling stones. This is really cool. Small brass plaques placed throughout the city to mark where Jews and other victims of the Nazis uh, last lived before they were deported. In Berlin, the stones can be found outside many house entrances and driveways, commemorating the fates of people who lived in those houses. Right? You suddenly realize that an entire family was exterminated when you stumble across six, seven or more stones outside a building. Pretty fucking powerful. Good on them for being so strong, right? For not sweeping that shit under the rug. So hail Nimrod and hail modern Germany. The process of acceptance and commemoration not a completely linear one, though. See how they uh, got there. Let's go back to Germany at the end of World War II. In accordance with agreements made between Churchill, right, Roosevelt, Stalin, at the Yalta Conference in present-day Ukraine in February of 1945, Germany was divided by the victorious allies, Britain, the U.S., the Soviet Union, and France, into four zones of occupation, one for each of the allied nations I just listed. The fanatical German resistance and the liberation of concentration camps showing the world the extent of Nazi criminality hardened the U.S. military's approach to occupation, uh, paving the way for the adoption of Joint Chiefs of Staff Directive 1067. JCS 1067 called for a hard peace. It was to be brought home to the Germans that Germany's ruthless warfare and the fanatical Nazi resistance have destroyed the German economy and made the chaos and suffering inevitable. And the Germans had brought this upon themselves. Germany was not to be occupied for the purpose of liberation, but as a defeated enemy nation. What an interesting scenario. Basically, the Western world, you know, the US definitely was like, uh, hey guys, uh, you really fucked up. Not just your army. Uh-uh. No, all you motherfuckers. Look at you, Nana. Don't you fucking look away from me. Everybody gets in line. Everybody gets a bare bottom spanking today. Everyone goes to bed early. No supper. Tomorrow, well, we'll talk about what comes next. Uh, JCS 1067 called for the mandatory arrest of many accused Nazis, around 170,000 people in the U.S. zone, comprising the uh, states of Bavaria, Hesse, uh, Baden-Württemberg, um, or excuse me, Baden-Württemberg, were interned without trial in the first months of occupation. But then most would soon be released because U.S. officials quickly realized that taking a real hard line, maybe not the best call in a country already filled with chaos and devastation. 
There was already widespread misery. Why continue to add to it? Who is that going to help? Observers reported that the destruction in some of the larger cities had to be seen to be believed. For example, 66% of the houses in Cologne destroyed. In Dusseldorf, 93% of homes uninhabitable. Dusseldorf was a city of around a half a million people and nearly all of its housing was fucking uninhabitable. That's hard to process, right? It's almost unfathomable. The Jews weren't the only people in Germany who had suffered during the war. Millions of non-Jewish Germans had suffered tremendously under Hitler as well. The economy was at a standstill. No central government remained to implement any instructions uh, issued by the Allies. How crazy is that? You can issue all the sanctions, punishments you want, but if there's no one there to fucking implement them, what good is it? There's no government. Germany's been obliterated. Millions and millions of people were homeless or attempting to return to homes that no longer existed. Uh, Looking in the top 10 or so sources, estimates range between 5 to 8 million Germans homeless. And then there were the other nations they'd fucked up, like Poland, modern-day Ukraine, where they left millions of other people homeless. The Nazis, the Allies fighting the Nazis, had really made a mess of much of Europe, especially Eastern Europe. The homeless population in Germany included German civilians evacuated from the cities of uh, trying to escape from the fighting on both Eastern and Western fronts, former forced laborers from across Europe, ethnic Germans expelled from Czechoslovakia, from former German Eastern territories now ceded to Poland, right? People are just fucking roaming around everywhere. Uh, Yvonne Kirkpatrick, later appointed head of the German department and subsequently permanent undersecretary at the foreign office, described his first impressions of Germany in 1945. He said there was hundreds of thousands of Germans on foot trekking in all directions. And this is such a powerful description as if a giant ant heap had suddenly been disturbed, right? Just picture a giant fucking ant hill that's been disturbed, but replace all those ants with people. Just imagine that chaos. We've never seen anything like that in the US, not even during the Great Depression. Not now with all of our homeless 10 cities. This is way beyond that, way more dystopian. The misery for many in Germany didn't end with an allied victory. Makes me think about all the Ukrainian refugees currently displaced from their homes, looking for a place to uh, wait out Putin's nightmare. Currently, more than 12 million fled their homes. There was also the problem in Germany following the war of Germans, uh, who you know, following the war, this problem of Germans who feared retribution by the people who their state had tried to murder. Not surprisingly, some looting, destruction of German property occurred. Post-war German fears of revenge echoed the unprecedented escalation of violence during the last stages of the Second World War. As many German soldiers were killed during the last 10 months of the war as had been killed during the entire preceding five-year period. The month with the highest number of German casualties, January of 1945. Allied Soviet casualties exhibited a similar peak in the final months of the war. Uh, You know, German morale near the end of the war was still unbroken. They just couldn't imagine actually losing. They were so afraid of post-war retribution, they felt that they had to win. For some Germans, the inability to imagine a future beyond national socialism led to suicide. When they did lose, right, the spring of 1945 witnessed a wave of suicides of high Nazi officials who, like their Fuhrer, escaped uh, the prospect of being called to task for their deeds during the Third Reich by taking their own lives. Yet most Germans did not commit suicide, and as members of the German national community, they now faced the threat and reality of being targeted for their state's crimes. They feared retribution from Jewish people. German fears of uh, Jewish revenge centered on Nazi propaganda, a notion of a Jewish war, By the end of the war, many Germans had firmly internalized the anti-Semitic idea that the Second World War had been waged on behalf of a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. According to the reports of the SD, the Security Service, the Nazi Intelligence Unit, many Germans saw the bombings of German cities as retaliation for the night of broken glass. The persecution of the Jews had provided the images and fantasies of what might happen to Germans in the case of defeat. Rumors circulated that the Allies would force Germans to wear a swastika on their clothes. 
uh, you know, an analogy to the Jewish star the Nazi had forced Jewish people to wear. Actual Jewish acts of violent revenge, though, exceedingly rare. There was one group of roughly 50 Jewish men and women, dubbed the Jewish Avengers, who in 1946 did plot to have 6 million non-Jewish Germans killed, right? Good old eye for an eye, vengeance. After what they've been through, I don't fucking blame them. Most of them have lost the majority of their family members to the Holocaust. One of their ideas was to poison the water supplies of Nuremberg, a plot that could have killed hundreds of thousands. Uh, Another idea was to poison thousands of loaves of bread with arsenic, bread that would then be fed to German POWs. They actually tried that, but it didn't work because they spread the arsenic around too thinly. In the end, they abandoned their plan, afraid the operation would kill innocent Germans and undermine international support for the establishment of Israel. There weren't any acts of mass revenge killings in Germany after World War II. Uh, There were some outbreaks of violence and panic. According to a report of local press in Nuremberg in May of 1945, former Russian POWs and slave workers marched the city drunken with a hostile and aggressive attitude. They entered the Nuremberg Zoo, where some of them worked during the war, and they killed heartless and without mercy, defenseless and frightened animals, including a deer, a bear, even a lion. Man, fucking poor animals. They weren't aligned with the Nazis, right? They didn't pick a side. Uh, German officials constantly complained about marauding foreigners, usually labeled as Poles, Russians, or Ukrainians. A German official from Ansbach in the American occupation zone reported nightly robberies by gangs of Poles who were supposedly shooting unarmed Germans with machine guns. Not sure if that was rumor or fact. In October of 1945, 30 Poles did break into the home of Theodore E. Heimbuchtel, murdered him and his war-disabled son, committed violence against his daughter and a farm laborer, and robbed the house. Uh, This incident did happen for a fact. I'm assuming that violence against the daughter uh, implies rape. Did get a a lot of press, and then the German population reacted to these murders with great embitterment, paralyzing fear. But incidents like that were surprisingly very rare. After the war, it was hard for those seeking retribution to be able to tell who had been a Nazi and who had just been some random German citizen who may not have been supportive of Hitler. It was such an unstable, chaotic, and violent time with a whole nation of people who either thought they were being victimized, many of whom had been uh, the victimizers just days, weeks, months earlier, or they were victims who wanted revenge. And yet more people still who just wanted uh, enough to eat and some adequate medical care. It was an enormous task to try and clean up the mess that Hitler and his goons had made of everything. So how were the Allies going to deal with it all? There were clear obstacles. Field Marshal Montgomery appointed Commander-in-Chief and Military Governor of the British Zone of Occupation, May 22, 1945, later recalled the immediate problems they faced. There was a problem of what to do with one and a half million German POWs, uh, another million wounded German soldiers, similar numbers of civilian German refugees, hundreds of thousands of displaced persons of many nationalities, uh, you know, uh, no working transportation, communication services, industry, agriculture at a standstill, scarcity of food, a great risk of mass starvation and, uh, you know, disease. He said, I was a soldier. I had not been trained to handle anything of this nature. However, something had to be done and done quickly. Montgomery decided to treat the task of governing their defeated enemy as if it were a military operation, referring to the need to fight the battle of the winter to secure food, work, and homes for former enemies. Uh, Allies even tried releasing German POWs to work the land and help bring enough food to reduce the risk of German starving. This new policy of reconstruction had some limited success, but fell short of achieving any sustained economic growth or more than a basic substance level of existence for the German civilian population. Then there was also the matter of who would control Germany when the occupation was over. The Allies feared that leaving Germany to its own devices might create a scenario in which another fucking dictator rises to power. 
Out of all this chaos, they had to create a new political system that would prevent another Hitler. This, the Allies believed, could best be achieved by a policy of decentralization, starting the process of political renewal at the local level, giving people responsibility for their communities. In August of 1945, the Allies issued a communique that said, It is not the intention of the Allies to destroy or enslave the German people. It is the intention of the Allies that the German people be given the opportunity to prepare for the eventual reconstruction of their life in a democratic and peaceful basis. In their own efforts, or if their own efforts are steadily directed to this end, it will be possible for them in due course to take their place among the free and peaceful people of the world. The personal relationship between the occupying allies and the German civilians changed a tremendous amount in the first few months following the war. Went from a policy of non-fraternization, a ban on all contact with Germans other than those necessary for work, due to basically seeing uh, all Germans as either Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, to official support for all forms of activity that promoted mutual understanding and personal reconciliation. This change in official policy appeared to reflect changes in attitudes among troops on the ground who were starting to see Germans as individuals and, quote, people like us, rather than as evil stereotypes promoted during the war, which, you know, uh, stereotypes portrayed all Germans as, you know, aggressive, militaristic, basically evil, not to be trusted. Seeing the Germans as regular people who got swept up in something horrific led to around 10,000 British soldiers and officials marrying German women they met during the occupation. <laughs> I love this. Uh, and, I, and I'm guessing that the majority of these women were, you know, good people who had just uh, happened to have been born in a nation led by an evil dictator. But also, even if some of those women were hardcore Nazis, because of young dudes, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes young dudes uh, can, can fall into a trap where they pretty much think uh, only with their dick, thanks to the true power of pussy and the biological imperative, if some hardcore Nazis were sexy and sexual enough, I bet some of those British soldiers and officials, uh, you know, would have probably been able to uh, overlook that. February 19th, 1948. Dearest Bentley, my sweet baby brother, I'm looking forward tremendously to seeing you once I return home from Germany. Don't say a word to mother or father, but I... I won't be returning home alone. I've met someone. Her name is Ursula, and we're going to be wed. I'm in love, baby brother. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. 24-inch waist, 36-inch hips, 38-inch bust. Flawless skin, perfect teeth, gorgeous green eyes, high cheekbones, thick blonde hair, and, uh, well, a true she-devil in the bedroom. There is nothing she won't try. She's insatiable. She is perfect in every way, other than her, well and utter hatred of the Jewish race. I haven't told her yet that I am Jewish. I think it's best if we just don't talk about it. Perhaps for the rest of my life. So please, when you see her, don't say anything that sounds too Jewish. She is so fucking hot. Bentley, if you ruin this for me, I'll kill you. Or perhaps I'll, I'll let her kill you. I imagine that would turn her on greatly. She lets me stick it in everywhere, baby brother. If I had to choose, I would send our own parents to a concentration camp if it meant I got more of that sweet, sweet, tight Bavarian pussy. I'll see you soon. Love, Caleb. I realize that was a bit ridiculous, but also, straight guys will overlook so fucking much when it comes to hot, sexy, charged woman, right? Who wants to fuck them? Anyway, German and British relationships, uh, American-French relationships with uh, Germans really did start to quickly improve during the Allied occupation. Official initiatives to promote mutual uh, understanding and personal reconciliation included Anglo-German, Anglo-German discussion groups, exchange visits, town twinning projects, 
and a network of reading rooms and British inform- information centers referred to as the Bridge. The British also encouraged elections for new German officials, hopefully ones without Nazi ties. Nazi party had been declared to be illegal by the Allied powers during uh, following World War II. Beginning in the summer of 1945, occupation authorities permitted the formation of non-Nazi German uh, political parties in preparation for elections for new local and regional representative assemblies. This was encouraged in the Western German zones. Uh, the reconstruction was developing a little differently in the East because Russia, fucking commies. 1949, four years after the end of the war, three Western zones formally joined, joined together to form the Federal Republic of Germany, known to uh, most as West Germany. Excuse me. And the Soviet zone became the German Democratic Republic. It was not democratic. Known as East Germany. Cold War had already begun. Cold War had already begun. The West went almost immediately from fighting Japan, Italy, and Germany to preparing for a possibly even bigger fight with the Soviet Union. When the Allies had divided Germany into four zones, it quickly concerned the Western Allies, Britain, France, U.S., that the Soviets were using their occupation to further the spread of communism. The Soviets almost immediately started doing shit like seeking German factories, or seizing them, excuse me, seizing German factories, failing to deliver agricultural produce they promised to the other zones. Meanwhile, the Americans, British, and French favored a revival of German industry so as to enable the Germans to feed themselves. Soviets opposed that. Luckily, like the other allies, the Soviets also removed the Nazis in their zone from power, and then they did promote local elections, kind of, but not really. They heavily pressured the new parties to become communist parties. And in April of 1946, the Social Democratic Party leaders in the Soviet zone agreed to merge as a result of significant pressure from the Soviets with the communists. So maybe agreed, not the right word. They were strongly encouraged and threatened with death to merge with communists. The Socialist Unity Party swept victories in the first elections for local and regional assemblies in the Soviet zone. Interestingly, however, when in October of 1946, elections were held under fairer conditions in Berlin, which was under four-power occupation and not just control of the Soviet by the Soviets, the Socialist Unity Party tallied fewer than half as many votes as the Social Democratic Party. Huh. Instead of simply fading from the political scene, with the, which the Soviets couldn't let happen, they purged the leaders of the Socialist Unity Party, replaced them with full-on Soviet communists. So nothing shady about that, right? People love communism, especially when they're forced to. Especially when the people before them that didn't disappear. Uh, when it became apparent by 1947 that the Soviet Union would not permit free multi-party elections throughout the whole of Germany, in 1947, the British and U.S., they combined economically their zones to form a bi-zone, but they remained separate political entities. The new occupation area was called Bizonia. The structure later served as a model for Western, uh, the Western German state. They hoped that the Soviet leadership would eventually come around, promote a free and intact Germany with its own elections and an independent economy. But when repeated meetings with the Soviets failed to produce four-power cooperation, the Western occupying powers decided in the spring of 1948 to move on their own. The Western allies, especially concerned about the deteriorating economic conditions throughout occupied Germany, which burdened their own countries and awakened fears of renewed political extremism among the Germans. To fight that, they introduced a new non-inflated currency, the Deutschmark. Germans, uh, the Soviets didn't like that. When the new Deutschmark was uh, introduced into Berlin, the Soviets protested vigorously, boycotted the Allied Control Council. They didn't want Germany to be their own country. They wanted Germany to join their empire, right? Become one with Mother Russia. Forget German. You're stronger now. You're Russian. June of 1948, they blockaded land uh, routes from the Western zones to the Western sectors of the old capital, which were surrounded by territory occupied by the Soviet Red Army. Soviet's intent was to seal off railways, highways, canals that were used to deliver food and fuel and force the occupied zone in Germany to merge politically and economically with the Soviet Union. And that's what would happen. Moving ahead with plans to restore a free and independent Germany in April of 1949, the French merged their zone into Bizonia 
becomes Trizonia. That September, a German parliamentary council begins drafting a constitution for a new West German government. Initially, West Germany, not a sovereign state. Its uh, powers were circumscribed by the occupation statute drawn up by the American, British, and French governments in 1949. That document reserved to those powers ultimate authority over such matters as foreign relations, foreign trade, level of industrial production, and all questions relating to military security. You can be your own country, Germany, kind of. You try that Nazi shit again, we're going to fucking shut all this down. Everyone's going to have to get back in line, more bare-bottom spankings. Everyone goes to bed early, again, with no supper. Uh, this limited autonomy, one thing that would later lead to the 19, in the 1990s to a rise of neo-Nazis in East Germany who would identify this as a form of oppression, say that only Nazism could save them from that oppression. Uh, the occupation statute, though, would expire in 1955. Backing up when it became clear that a West German government would be established, a so-called election for a People's Congress was held in the Soviet occupation zone, May of 1949. But instead of choosing among candidates, voters were only allowed to uh, approve or reject uh, unity lists of candidates drawn from all parties, uh, picked by the Soviets, right? They were just, uh, you know, controlled by the Soviet Communist Party. So fuck yeah, bro, nice. Uh, it was no surprise that all the people elected were communists because that's the people that were allowed to run. October of 1949, following the formation of the Federal Republic, constitution ratified by the People's Congress went to effect in the Soviet zone, which became the German Democratic Republic, known to the rest of the world as East Germany, with its capital in Berlin. And that is a story of how Germany became divided into two, two Germanys in the wake of World War II. How the two Germanys dealt with the Holocaust ended up being, not surprisingly, very different. In West Germany, owing to the sheer number of those who had been involved in some level of Nazi activity, many former Nazis not only survived, but gradually returned to positions of influence in business, education, and other sectors. The first chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, famously said of his chief of staff, Hans Globeck, who would help define the Nuremberg race laws against German Jews, that one should not throw dirty water away as long as you do not have clean. Damn. How does that make you feel if you're a Jew living in Germany following the war? Right, when the new government includes a guy who helped define your race before the war in a way that led to your people being stripped of all the rights and their property, a guy who defined your race in a way that also paved for their removal and deportation to gas chambers. Unfortunately, the only Germans in Germany following the war who had any real political experience were former Nazis. In law and civil service, the percentage of highly trained people who had been members of the Nazi party meant that either one required a radical rethinking of trained professionals or an acceptance of Nazis returning to the legal field. The government of Konrad Adenauer chose the second option, trying to retain these people's way of thinking as best he could. Retrain, retrain, not retain, uh, very different. Trying to retrain. And Konrad was someone who was not a Nazi. Uh, he was the exceptionally rare German politician who had long opposed the Nazis and survived the war. He was incarcerated a few times, had to live in hiding for a while, but he lived. But in many ways, outside of some reparations I'll talk about in a bit, the decade of the 1950s, Conrad, Chancellor from 1949 to 1963, was an era of silence in West Germany in regards to its Nazi past. In that decade, well above half of Federal Ministry of Justice employees were members of the Nazi Party. Uh, worse still, numerous leading figures in the Justice Ministry had been involved in ministries specifically overseeing the Holocaust. Many of the more radical reforms pursued by the Allies in the early days of the occupation were abandoned. Ranks of government ministries quickly filled with ex-Nazi members. It was either allow former Nazis to help run the new government or greatly exacerbate, exacerbate an already terrible, fragile economic rebuilding plan. So as Germany rebuilt itself and used mainly former Nazis to do so, how was it doing in regards to its cultural attitudes to Jews? Unfortunately, 
Also, unsurprisingly, anti-Semitism pervasive in all zones of Germany. Germany losing the war tragically played right into many Germans' horrible attitudes about the Jews. Of course they lost the war. The Jews made certain of that. And now the Jews were going to punish them again because they were the real victims. A December 1946 report on anti-Semitism circulated by the U.S. Army found that 18% of Germans were still categorized as being radical anti-Semites. Another 21% anti-Semites. Another 22% moderate racists. Another poll from 1947 found that more than one-third of all Germans felt that it was better for there to be no Jews in Germany. I wonder what category those respondents we put in. Hopefully not moderate racists. Look, I don't hate the Jews. I just think it would be better for everyone if we just threw them all out of the country. If, if, if you think that sounds moderately racist, well, I guess I'm a moderate racist then. Uh, many, if not most Germans in the first decades following the war had little to no interest in dealing with the Holocaust. They even resented the Nazi officials, uh, that, that Nazi officials were being tried for crimes. On January 7th, 1951, thousands of German citizens protested the death sentences for high-ranking Nazis outside of Munich. One of the condemned, Oswald Pohl, he'd been head of the Nazis' SS paramilitary unit's main economic and administrative office, a man instrumental in carrying out the Holocaust. Uh, there was also Otto Orlendorf, Dorf, uh, who was commander of an SS task force, was directly responsible for carrying out the murder of more than 90,000 unarmed civilians. In September of 1941, his staff reported from the Soviet Union to SS leader Heinrich Himmler and Reich security main office that the working areas of the command have been cleared of Jews. Between August 19th and September 25th, 8,890 Jews and communists were executed, bringing the total up to 17,315. At present, the Jewish question is being solved. An estimated 4,000 Germans showed up to protest these pieces of shit uh, being executed. Why? Well, I imagine that they saw themselves being judged right along with these men. Those guys were just following orders, right? Just carrying out orders, just like they'd done. If those guys were deemed worthy of death, well, maybe they also were worthy of death. How many of those 4,000 protesters had worked in concentration camps or helped remove Jews from their homes? How many had killed unarmed POWs? How many had raped Jewish or Slavic or other women? Mass rape during World War II rarely talked about. There was so much stigma and shame around it that data was never properly collected. But anecdotally, rape widespread in ghettos, concentration camps elsewhere. A lot of Nazis raping Jewish women you know, uh, right in front of people. I mean, many, many anecdotal uh, cases of this. If your country has labeled you as subhuman, you have no rights. I mean, who the fuck is going to believe you if, uh, you know, some Nazi raped you? So of course it was just really never, never reported. Uh, rather than live with shame, rather than directly face their complicity and guilt, many Germans in the wake of World War II chose to see themselves as victims. Victims of the occupation, right? They were forcibly uh, being held responsible for actions. They, in their views, had no choice but to uh, take. Fortunately, this mentality started to lessen by the 1960s. 60s and 70s, many German intellectuals began to critically engage with their country's past, writing novels, plays, nonfiction that explored the sins and burdens of the past and how Germany could move forward. The persistent efforts of a small group of dedicated anti-Nazis who kept the memory of post-war anti-fascism alive did the most to push West Germany towards a more thorough coming to terms with the past. In the legal field, one such man was attorney Fritz Bauer. As a German Jew and longtime social democrat, Bauer was forced to flee Nazi Germany and spent much of the wartime years in Denmark and then Sweden. When he returned to Germany in 1949, he was one of the precious few jurists who pursued a thorough legal reckoning for the Nazis' crimes. Bauer prosecuted Otto Remner, or Otto Riemer, uh, the founder of the neo-Nazi Socialist Reich Party who called the bomb plotters against Hitler traitors to the people. 
Otto fled the country to avoid charges in relation with rebuilding the Nazi party in West Germany, wouldn't return to Germany until the 1980s. Uh, Fritz Bauer also uh, helped find Adolf Eichmann and risk prosecution for treason by telling the Israelis where he was, fully aware that the West German intelligence services would do nothing to bring Eichmann to justice, as they didn't consider escaped Nazis their problem. And in one of the most important legal acts bringing the Holocaust to the forefront of the West German public life, in 1963, Fritz Bauer organized the main trial for several Auschwitz perpetrators in post-war West Germany. Germans, like Fritz, forced Germany to reconcile with their Holocaust-related history. So hail Fritz Bauer. Sadly, Fritz was found uh, drowned in his bathtub, July 1st, 1968. He was 64. Uh, Numerous historians believe that Fritz was homosexual. He had tried unsuccessfully in post-war Germany to repeal old laws, banning expressions of homosexuality. He fought so hard for Germany to see Jews as being equal, to punish those who hurt and killed them because they didn't see them as equal. Meanwhile, many non-Jews and Jews alike didn't accept him for who he really was. Can't imagine how much that must have really hurt, right? How tragic and completely unnecessary. So rest in peace, Fritz. I hope you're living up in some heaven full of uh, others as educated and brave as you are. Hope you're living in a, a place full of handsome and horny Jewish dudes who think you're hot as fuck. And the best matzo ball soup and fresh from the oven, challah bread, and whatever the fuck else you love. In the midst of all this craziness, some Jewish communities found ways to reestablish themselves in Germany. Some of those who had stayed had survived with the help of non-Jewish Germans, right? They refused to see all Germans equally culpable. Uh, Others simply too old, too frail to migrate. Efforts to rebuild started immediately after the war ended. By 1948, more than 100 Jewish communities were founded across Germany. Fucking crazy to me. Uh, They were made up of two very distinct groups. There were the German-born Jews, most of whom who had been uh, highly assimilated and connected with their German surroundings. And then there were thousands of displaced Jewish refugees from Eastern European countries who found themselves unwillingly in Germany with limited means, limited knowledge of the German language. They struggled to find permanent living solutions. More than 90% of the Jewish refugees who ended up in Germany did leave, excuse me, did leave within three to four years, mostly to the U.S. and newly founded state of Israel. Uh, Only about 15,000 of them stayed on German soil. Now, uh, for those reparations I mentioned earlier, in 1951, Western German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer committed to paying moral and material indemnity for the unspeakable crimes committed in the name of the German people during World War II. And in 1952, the government signed a set of reparations agreements with Israel and an umbrella group of advocates known as the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany or Claims Conference. Over the next 20 years, Germany committed to compensating other countries, Jewish and non-Jewish victims of the Holocaust, and forced uh, former forced laborers, a sum that Germany reported to be over 77.8 billion marks. However, originally many Jews actually didn't want this money. Interesting. After World War II, many Israelis and Jewish Holocaust survivors were uh, just very opposed to the idea of reparations from Germany. They deemed it blood money, felt it would whitewash Germany's crimes. In 1952, nationalistic opposition leader, future Israeli prime minister, uh, Menachem Begin, uh, begged Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, who was fighting for reparations, not to enter negotiations with the Germans. He said, in this generation of ours that we call the last of bondage and first of redemption, in this generation that we have been privileged to gain back our dignity, in which we emerge from slavery to freedom, you are ready for a few millions of contaminated dollars and for impure goods to deprive us of dignity that we have earned. Damn. Well, Ben-Gurion thought of another way to look at this money. He believed the only way his fledgling state of Israel would survive was through German financial support and managed to secure political backing for this view within within their Israeli parliament. 
He wouldn't frame the reparations as compensation for what happened during the Holocaust, but the money would help people establish new lives, allow for Israel to support Jews in their new homeland. And to their credit, West Germany paid up. They've actually never stopped paying up. Uh, Stuart E. Eisenstadt uh, negotiated Holocaust reparations with Germany on behalf of the U.S. and Claims Conference and the latest reparations secured by the Claims Conference in 2013 when the German government agreed to pay approximately $1 billion for the home care of elderly Holocaust survivors. And uh, too bad America did not do something similar for the victims of slavery. Would have went a long ways to healing. Uh, The reparations that began in the 1950s would also remind civilian Germans of their responsibility for the atrocities and ensure that reconciling with the Holocaust was not something that happened overnight, but needed to be taught to subsequent generations. In 1995, German Chancellor Richard von Weizsäcker made the case for intergenerational responsibility and solidarity in a powerful speech. The vast majority of today's population were either children then or had not been born, he said, but their forefathers have left them a grave legacy. All of us, whether guilty or not, whether old or young, must accept the past. We are all affected by its consequences and liable for it. I think that's beautiful. And again, I think we can learn so much from that. Don't hide from the past. Own it. Apologize uh, when appropriate and move forward as best you can. Apologies, owning mistakes, in my experience, goes a long ways towards healing. Over in East Germany, things uh, progressing, as I said earlier, fucking so different. Kazrasha. East Germany's position was that it was actually West Germany that had been Hitler's Third Reich. Seriously. With a tricky bit of propaganda and historical revisionism, they claimed they had no connection to the Holocaust because West Germany was the aggressors, even though that literally made no fucking sense whatsoever because it wasn't East Germany. This is so fucking ridiculous. This is so fucking Russia. We are disgusted by what West Germany did. Capitalist Hitler was evil man. I remember when West Germany and Nazis do so much Holocausting. We here in East Germany were so disgusted by whole thing. Uh, but uh, East, uh, West Germany didn't exist back then. Uh, and actually, the Nazis' uh, last headquarters, the, the Fuhrer bunker, uh, that was located in what is now East Berlin. Hey, sorry, but that's not true. That's capitalist lie. If you look right here in official communist history book I wrote last week, it say Hitler born in Omaha, Nebraska. He then trained by evil capitalists in Bangor, Maine to kill many Jews. He then moved to West Germany by dictator FDR, who gave him Holocaust plan. <laughs> I, listen, it's in, the, it's in the book I wrote. Ah, uh, fucking Russia. They have long loved nonsensical propaganda. From the Tsars to the Bolsheviks, through Yeltsin, now Putin. Fucking poor Russian people. They've been abused and grossly manipulated for fucking centuries. Uh, East Germany's communist government uh, never formally apologized for the Holocaust, you know, because they didn't have anything to do with it. And then far-right mobs uh, who beat up foreign workers from fellow socialist states like Cuba or Angola were classified as rowdies, led astray by Western propaganda, not what they actually were, neo-Nazis, because of course that's rising there now. 1987, Bernd Wagner, young police officer in East Berlin, estimated that there were at least 15,000 homegrown violent neo-Nazis, of which 1,000 were repeat offenders. Uh, Jumping ahead now to 1989, the year Germany reunites. That year saw a mass exodus of East Germans. Protests across East Germany also led to the uh, rapid collapse of communist rule. Weird that so many people hated communism there and wanted to get the fuck away from it. Huh. Bojangles just grinned at me. Uh, Germany would be uh, merged into a federal republic in 1990. Uh, that year, East Germany, no longer tied to the Soviet Union and their bullshit propaganda machine, would finally admit its role in the Holocaust. In April of 1990, East Germany apologized to Israel, all Jews for the Nazi Holocaust, and accepted a joint responsibility for the slaughter of 6 million Jews during World War II. 
I just picture some uh, Russian guy. Uh, I look back at the book and I realize uh, many mistakes. Uh, I realize I probably should not have uh, written history and maybe just, uh, you know, look to actual historians for what they maybe were saying. So my bad. Uh, here's an expert from a, a statement read during a televised session of parliaments. East Germany's first freely elected parliament admits joint responsibility on behalf of the people for the humiliation, expulsion, and murder of Jewish women, men, and children. We feel sad and ashamed. The statement added, we ask the Jews of the world to forgive us. We ask the people of Israel to forgive us for the hypocrisy and hostility of official East German policies towards Israel and for the persecution and degradation of Jewish citizens also after 1945 in our country. Fucking hail Nimrod. Hail the East German parliament for making a, a hard apology there and fuck the Soviet Union. It's fucking, what a garbage nation. Uh, in addition to the reparations and apologies, a now unified Germany went on to sponsor education about the Nazis and fund numerous memorials to the victims of the Holocaust. These days, you can visit Berlin's memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, a memorial designed on five acres by Peter Eisenman, who envisioned a sort of bowl-shaped field that allows visitors to enter from all four sides, walk through, become lost amidst the increasingly towering columns. And there's also those stumbling stones I spoke of earlier, set in the streets of Berlin, commemorating the Jewish people who used to live and do business there. Stones commemorate the individual victims of the Holocaust with their name or names of a whole family on a stone, date or dates of birth, brief description of their fate, literally intended for you to stumble over, abruptly jolt you back into awareness of the events that took place in the same streets decades before. Fucking great idea. Uh, unfortunately, Germany's uh, reunification also led to a rise in neo-Nazis. During the 1990s, many of the former inhabitants of East Germany struggled with losing a significant chunk of their workforce to mig migration to the West and with adjusting to new political and economic, uh, a new political and economic system. At the same time, the immigration that has supported West Germany's manufacturing industry started trickling into East Germany. Within the context of a difficult political and economic transition, public dissatisfaction started to express itself in resentment towards these workers, these newcomers. Then a wave of violence, neo-Nazism, uh, followed. September of 1991, the East German town of Hoyersverda, witnessed a week of race riots in which neo-Nazis targeted asylum seekers and Vietnamese and Mozambican temporary workers who had been brought in years earlier by the communist government to work in a nearby coal mine. A violent mob besieged attacked the hostel where the workers were staying. As local residents not only looked on, they fucking cheered. As the attacks persisted, the local authorities were forced to evacuate the foreigners. Neo-Nazis then focused their efforts on a dormitory housing asylum seekers from Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa. They besieged the building, threw Molotov cocktails at it until the local authorities decided to uh, bus out its more than 200 inhabitants. Although over 80 people were arrested in the riots, only four convicted. The success, uh, you know, quote unquote, of the neo-Nazi riot in Hoyersverda then inspired similar attacks on foreign workers and asylum seekers elsewhere in the country. In the following years, cities across East Germany gradually became neo-Nazi strongholds. So it was in the East German city of uh, Jena that the notorious neo-Nazi terror cell National, National Socialist Underground first appeared. It was another East German city, uh, Chemnitz, that its uh, three principal members fled to and went underground when the German authorities first picked up their trail in 1998. The group killed people of Turkish, Kurdish, Greek origin, committed terrorist attacks throughout the country. Reunification also provided a physical space in which far-right members could move and train secret neo-Nazi training camps held at abandoned Soviet military bases. One of them on the island of Rugen in the Baltic Sea. Uh, Neo-Nazis took part in workshops on forging identity papers, bomb-making, guerrilla warfare, uh, quote, uh, silent killing. From 2000 to 2007, the National Socialist Underground killed nine immigrants and a police officer 
even as paid informers of the intelligence agency helped hide its leaders and build up its network. The German government has tried to fight this kind of behavior for a long time. The German penal code prohibits publicly denying the Holocaust, disseminating Nazi propaganda, right, as I uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, interesting argument regarding, uh, you know, uh, hate speech here, right? Not supposed to even make statements in support of Hitler is one of the laws. Uh, I'm against censorship, but I mean, what if free speech were to actually greatly help give birth to another Hitler and allow that Hitler to rise to power again? Quite the uh, conundrum they had to deal with. Section 130 of the German Criminal Code criminalized, uh, yeah, certain types of hate speech. The law bans incitement to hatred, insults uh, that assault human dignity against people based on their racial, national, religious, or ethnic backgrounds. In post-World War II Germany, it has been used uh, to prosecute racist, anti-Semitic threats and slurs, carries a sense of up to five years in prison. And I did read about people who did spend five years in prison for, you know, anti-Semitic hate speech. Uh, Laws expanded to explicitly ban Holocaust denial in 1994, after a federal appeals court overturned the sentence of a far-right German politician who organized a lecture describing the gassing of Jews at Auschwitz as a total hoax. Despite all these measures, there are still problems with anti-Semitism in Germany. According to a 2015 Anti-Defamation League survey, 51% of Germans believe that it is probably true that, quote, Jews still talk too much about what happened to them in the Holocaust. And this is disturbing. 30% agreed with the statement, quote, People hate Jews because of the way Jews behave. In the past five years, a new political party full of anti-Semites has become alarmingly popular in Germany. The reactionary far-right alternative for Germany, AFD, entered the German parliament for the first time in 2017 and became its third largest party with an anti-immigration, anti-Islam platform, and anti-Semitic leanings heavily. Its politicians also opposed to Germany's remembrance culture, right? Let's not stop talking about the Holocaust. These people sound kind of like Nazis. AFD politicians have often uh, relativized Nazi crimes to counteract what some of them call a national guilt culture. In a speech last June, one of the party's leaders, Alexander Gotland, referred to the Nazi period as, this is such a weird quote, only a, a bird poop in over a thousand years of successful German history. It's only a bird poop. It's just a bird poop. Fucking what? That's a fucking weird thing to say. Yeah, so maybe the Nazis killed 6 million innocent Jews. Maybe the Nazis killed 15 to 20 million innocent people in the war. Oh, well, the milk is spilt. There's no use crying over it now. Some point their fingers and say the Nazis were the most evil, murderous terror regime in modern history. Maybe in the whole history of the world. And to this I say, tomato, tomato. Yes, our ancestors developed hundreds of factories and thousands of miles of train tracks, mostly for murdering innocent people many of them children, but they also, and this is not spoken of enough, came up with many delicious recipes for bratwurst and schnitzel and much good beer. I say, less talk of Holocaust, more talk of Oktoberfest. Less pictures of very skinny Jewish people near death, more pictures of well-fed Bavarian sexy women in cleavage, uh, Dundle, Lederhosen, cosplay, tavern bench costumes with the thigh-high white stockings and full of so much sexy life. I'd be negative Nancy. Uh, Gotland's 81 now. Has a weak heart, so hopefully he gives out soon. Uh, currently around 200,000 Jews live in Germany. Nation of over 83 million people and many are becoming increasingly fearful. In a 2018 European Union survey of European Jews, 85% of respondents in Germany characterize anti-Semitism as a very big or fairly big problem. 89% said the problem had become worse in the last five years. Overall reported anti-Semitic crimes in Germany increased by nearly 20% last year to 1,799, 
violent anti-Semitic crimes rose by about 86% to 69. Slightly more than half of Germany's Jewish respondents to the EU survey said they have directly experienced anti-Semitic harassment within the last five years. So while Germany has been very committed to reconciling with the Holocaust, still a lot of progress to be made. Another example of why it's important to keep talking about this shit, right? To never stop denouncing it. Now let's look at another uh, nasty way of thinking about the Holocaust. Perhaps the most extreme and insane, Holocaust denial. Right after today's mid-show, sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. 
Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for not going anywhere, Meat Sacks. Now let's talk about some especially ignorant motherfuckers. So why do any people deny that the Holocaust took place? In the face of so much fucking evidence, including thousands of photographs of concentration camps, uh, the recorded testimony of thousands of Nazis and survivors alike, some 3,000 documents on the destruction of Europe's Jewish community by the Nazis that were in fact presented by the prosecution uh, before war crime tribunals at Nuremberg, why would you claim that the Holocaust just simply never happened? Emory University, uh, yeah, Emory University professor Deborah Lipstadt, author of Denying the Holocaust, has uh, tried to explain it. She has written that Holocaust deniers quite simply have shit for brains, perhaps literally. If I were able to drill a hole into the skull of a Holocaust denier, I would not be surprised to see literal shit start to seep out of their head. They're that fucking stupid. Ironically, I wish we could round them up and kill them. Uh, Okay, maybe she didn't write that. Uh, What she actually wrote was the denier selection of the name revisionist to describe themselves is indicative of their basic strategy to deceit and distort and of their attempt to portray themselves as legitimate historians engaging in the traditional practice of illuminating the past. It's a fancy way of saying they lie so they can seem like smart people who know the real truth. Reminds me of uh, all the truthers out there, right? Holy shit. I have yet to run across some fucking YouTube channel, website, social media account with truther in the title and not thought that they, uh, you know, weren't an ignorant fuckface, right? QAnon, truther. Flat Earth, truther. Area 51, truther. Illuminati, truther. You get it. If you actually... <laughs> Know the truth. You don't have to fucking go out of your way to proclaim that you're a truther. It's like you're saying like, I know this is going to sound fucking crazy. Uh, putting like the truther qualifier reminds me of somebody who uh, starts off uh, a statement or a joke with like, listen, I'm not a racist. <laughs> and then uh, inevitably almost follows it with like saying some racist shit. Listen, I'm not a fucking crazy person, but I'm a truther. You know, you're just fucking crazy. Uh, portraying themselves as seekers of historical truth allows deniers to present Nazism and anti-Semitism as a legitimate political strategy rather than what it is, just plain old hatred and bigotry. Holocaust denial is a huge tool for anti-Semites, some of whom advocate that the Holocaust was just another way for the Jews to establish superiority. All part of the master plan. July 24th, 1996, Harold Covington, former leader of the National, National Socialist White People's Party, that then became the American Nazi Party, 
Explain why the Holocaust was such an important rally cry for Jewish people. Take away the Holocaust and what do you have left? Without their precious Holocaust, <laughs> what a fucking weird thing to say. Without their precious Holocaust, what are the Jews? Just a grubby little bunch of international bandits and assassins and squatters who have perpetrated the most massive cynical fraud in human history. Uh, Harold thankfully died a few years ago. Also uh, thankfully died in relative obscurity. Holocaust denial movement, uh, Harold was a part of, bases its approach on the predetermined idea that the Holocaust, as understood by mainstream hist uh, historiography, did not happen. Holocaust revisionists claim that survivors of the Holocaust lied about their experiences. You know, just all of them. All of them lied. Uh, continue to lie. Uh, Allied soldiers who liberated the camps, uh, they, they lied, or at least exaggerated. The films, photos of Nazi atrocities, well, that's all fucking made up. Even the ones captured from the Nazis themselves. Uh, captured Nazi documents, you know, that's forged. Uh, all the confessions during the trials, well, the coerced. Man, you have to jump over a lot of fucking mental hurdles to make that shit work. Holocaust deniers, not big fans of uh, Occam's Razor, a scientific and philosophical rule we've talked about that entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily, which is interpreted as requiring that the simplest of competing theories be preferred to the more complex or that explanations of unknown phenomena be sought first in terms of known quantities. In other words, the simplest explanation, generally the correct explanation, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. In this case, millions of people uh, all not lying about the Holocaust is obviously to people with working brains. Far and away, the simplest and most logical explanation. Uh, deniers deny the existence of the gas chambers used by Nazis to murder millions, claiming they were built by the Allies after the war. Make Germany look bad. Holy shit. That takes some interesting thoughts. Uh, <laughs> okay, guys, I know we have an entire nation to rebuild. Several, actually. We need to hurry up, get back to our home, and help rebuild our own nation that just came out of the Great Depression before being dragged into this mess. But uh, but first, uh, let's take a few months to build a bunch of fucking gas chambers to make these assholes <laughs> really look bad, <laughs> right? I mean, you have to be at least a little bit stupid to believe shit like that, don't you? At least a little bit. Uh, moreover, the claim that any Jews who did die in concentration camps, uh, they were just victims of disease who happened to be at, uh, in, in camps. Similar to the camps in the U.S. It was just like, you know, they were just internment camps, just like the ones used to unjustly incarcerate Japanese Americans. In fact, some deniers will argue that the Allies should be held uh, responsible for those deaths because their bombing attacks prevented the delivery of supplies and medicines from reaching the camps. Roughly 120,000 Japanese Americans were unjustly held in internment camps, by the way. Not one of America's best calls. Uh, how many died in those camps? I mean, tragic, a little over 1,800, horrible, inexcusable, not quite 6 million. And they weren't put in those camps specifically to be killed. So not that what America did with uh, internment camps was right on any level. It wasn't. But it was not equivalent to the Holocaust. Uh, let's go over a list of deniers' core claims. Uh, first one, the estimates of Jewish losses during the Holocaust greatly exaggerated. There were never even 6 million Jews in Germany. Uh, yeah, that's correct. There weren't ever 6 million Jews in Germany. Germany had fewer than 600,000 Jews when Hitler came to power in 1933. But what that line of reasoning misses badly is that the majority of Jews murdered by the Nazis never lived in Germany. How the fuck do they not understand that? Uh, they resided in the countries where Germany invaded during the war, especially Poland, areas of the former Soviet Union, you know, Ukraine, where millions of Jews once made their homes. In fact, the protocol of the Wannsee Conference, a German document written by Nazis, outlining the Nazi plan to annihilate European Jewry, lists over 11 million Jews throughout the continent. The 6 million figure can be demonstrated by comparing Europe's Jewish population overall before then after the war. 
even after making allowances for those who fled Europe and others, you know, who could be expected to die due to natural causes, there are still nearly roughly 6 million people who just can't be accounted for. What's more, authentic German World War II era documents confirm the slaughter of Jews in the millions. The famous Korr report, named after Richard Korr, chief uh, statistician for the SS, put the number of Jewish losses at more than 2,454,000 by the end of 1942. And the war in Europe would not end until May of 1945. And there are numerous documents, eyewitness accounts, to prove that Nazi Nazi concentration camp systems started to kill more quickly as the war went on. The Anglo-American Commission of Inquiry, which met in April of 1946, put the total Jewish Holocaust losses at at least 5,721,500. On the basis of wartime statistical reports on ghettos, concentration camps, mass murder operations carried out by Nazis, historian and international jurist Jacob Robinson arrived at a figure of 5,820,960. Another noted German historian, Helmut Krosnick, put the number of Jewish losses closer to 7 million. While the exact figure will never be known, scholar after scholar after scholar of the Holocaust finds a rounded off figure of 6 million to be in line with current evidence. So next uh, nonsensical denier argument. Didn't the International Committee for the Red Cross report that only 300,000 people had perished in the German concentration camps? Not all of them Jews. Uh, This is just straight up fucking nonsense. Uh, The Red Cross never reported any such thing. The 300,000 figure actually taken from a Swiss paper, Die in 1955, this estimate only a figure for the number of ethnic Germans perished who perished in the concentration camps. No mention of any actual Red Cross figures, however, was ever made by the paper. In its bulletin of February 1st, 1978, the Red Cross declared that it had never compiled, much less published, such stats. So that's a, a common argument that is just completely nonsense. The next one is the Holocaust couldn't have happened because the Nazi policy towards the Jews was immigration, not extermination. As we covered in the last episode, the Nazis actually didn't arrive at their policy of complete extermination until the Wannsee Conference in 1942, even though over 2 million had already died in camps by then. Uh, from the beginning, the Nazis made no secret of their goal of creating a Jew-free Germany in Europe. One of the earliest methods was indeed forced emigration to ghettos, to lands beyond Germany where millions died through starvation and overall mistreatment. But then as Germany kept expanding, new lands became part of Germany, not freeing up the Liebenstrom the living room for ethnic Germans as Hitler wanted. November 10th, 1941, precise instructions from Berlin to kill the Jews in, uh, in the area were received by higher SS and police leader Friedrich Jekyll from Berlin, stating that pursuant to the Fuhrer's order, Jews could no longer be allowed to emigrate. Instead, they must be evacuated. In October 4th, 1943, in a speech to the SS generals in Poznan, SS chief uh, Heinrich Himmler left no doubt as to the meaning of evacuation saying, I'm now referring to the evacuation of the Jews, the extermination of the Jewish people. Doesn't get much clearer than that. Evacuation was a documented Nazi code word for murder for years. In the spring of 1940, 1,558 mental patients had been transferred from sanatoriums in eastern Prussia for evacuation near the sold-out concentration camp. And they were never heard from again, of course. Nazis attempted to hide a lot of their evil intentions by code words. Resettlement, commonly used to describe the deportation of Jews sent to gas chambers. Hence, SS Major Frank Agrich's uh, 1943 report on Auschwitz in which he remarked that the camp's resettlement furnaces were capable of burning 10,000 bodies a day. Some pretty fucked up verbiage, right? What kind of furnaces are those? Oh, these, these are just uh, resettlement furnaces. You put a body in there, you burn it, and uh, you take the ashes out and resettle them in the field to help some crops grow. Uh, despite these attempts at deception, Victor Brock, one of the chief architects of Hitler's euthanasia experiments, testified to the war crimes tribunal at Nuremberg that it was no secret 
among Nazi hierarchy that the Jews were to be exterminated. Next shithead argument. Not a single document has been found with Hitler's signature ordering the extermination of the Jews. This is true. But there's a good reason for this. Well, depending on your definition of good. If you remember the T4 program from last week, Hitler's uh, you know, start in euthanasia was actually killing ethnic Germans who were disabled, right? All those fucking toddlers, uh, terminally ill or terminally ill, senior citizens as well. Uh, when Germans started protesting the murder of 7, 000, or 70,000 patients, when it became known, Hitler knew it was time to take his death experiment more underground. Never again would Hitler initial any document connecting himself to mass killings and risk his popularity with the German people. Uh, nevertheless, historians have been able to establish with convincing certainty that the order to exterminate millions of Jews came from Hitler directly. November 10th, 1941, higher SS and police leader Friedrich, uh, Friedrich, Friedrich Jekyllin uh, received orders to liquidate the Jewish population at Rega. He was informed by his superior, Heinrich Loos, a Nazi who would later be in prison for war crimes, that it was the Fuhrer's wish. A few months earlier, Gestapo chief Heinrich Mueller sent a message to the command, uh, commanders of the four Einsatzgruppen, Einsatzgruppen, uh, those mobile killing squads active in Eastern Europe, advising them that the Fuhrer has to be or was to be informed about the work of the Einsatzgruppen on a continual basis. It made his tiny deformed penis, the Michael Fuhrer, so almost hard, as hard as a little mutant's cock could get, to hear about the fresh death. Uh, discussing liquidation of Jews in Eastern Europe, SS chief Heinrich Himmler told SS uh, Gruppenfuhrer Gottlieb Berger, the occupied East will be freed of Jews. The Fuhrer has placed the execution of this difficult order on my shoulders. Hitler's involvement in the final solution also extended to gassing operations. October 5th, uh, 25th, 1941, a directive addressed to Heinrich Loos regarding the use of special gassing vans came by way of German judge Dr. Erhard Wetzel. Wetzel had been summoned to the chancellery informed that the directive he was to prepare was, in fact, a Fuhrer order. February 4th, 1943, Hitler uh, equated the extermination of the Jews with having exterminated a bacterium in a memo. Also on January 30th, 1939, speech uh, in a speech to the, uh, to the Reichstag, um, Hitler warned that in the event of war, the result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. So claiming Hitler didn't know about the Holocaust, uh, that doesn't hold much water. That's fucking crazy talk. On to another claim. Zyklon B was a fumigant. It was not a practical agent for a mass for mass murder. And if Zyklon B is so highly toxic, how could bodies have been removed from gas chambers only minutes after execution? Ordinarily, Zyklon B, hydrogen cyanide preparation, was used as an insecticide. Hydrogen cyanide, however, actually more dangerous to humans than insects. When the level of HCN reaches only 300 parts per million, it will kill a person in a few minutes. The amount of hydrogen cyanide required to kill a person of average weight, only 60 milligrams. Because Zyklon was, in fact, so toxic, manufacturers warned personnel not to re-enter a room fumigated with the gas for 20, 20 hours. Uh, in addition, to uh, a compound was added to the preparation, emitting a powerful, intolerable odor, a warning agent that the gas was present. When purchasing Zyklon B for the death camps, the SS ordered the manufacturer to remove that warning compound. Clear indication of intended use. Uh, the death chambers were outfitted with special ventilation systems to remove remaining gas. In addition, prisoners charged with removing the bodies... Right, those poor Sondra Commandos, they wore gas masks. So Zyklon B was in fact a very practical and effective way to kill millions. And that brings us to the final point, maybe the most important and insane point Holocaust deniers make. There is no proof whatsoever that the Nazis ever murdered anyone in gas chambers. There's so much fucking proof. Uh, the use of gas chambers by the Nazis proven by a wide array of evidence, testimony by the perpetrators themselves, as well as firsthand accounts of prisoners, 
especially members of the Sunder Commando uh, units. That's just a small part of the evidence. Uh, there's a lot of physical evidence, actual blueprints of the killing installations uh, were recovered, as well as orders for construction materials and Zyklon B. We have photos secretly taken by prisoners of Auschwitz-Birkenau, straight up show the disposal of corpses from the removed from the gas chambers. Uh, one denier even had his mind changed by this overwhelming evidence. Jean-Claude Prasak, one-time skeptic of the gas chambers, had undertaken a careful study of Auschwitz in which he analyzed a wide variety of camp documents, photos, reports, and blueprints. Prasak, who had been uh, intrigued by the Holocaust denying theories of Robert uh, F- uh, Farasen, oh man, I don't know how to say his name. I couldn't find the pronunciation yet. Farasen? Farasen, I think. Concluded that his original skepticism could no longer be supported in the face of the evidence. In 1989, the Clarsfield Foundation published a study, Auschwitz Technique and the Operation of the Gas Chambers, in which Prasak demonstrates the use of the gas chambers of Auschwitz-Birkenau in the murders of hundreds of thousands of people. So education, changing some people's minds, thank God. Uh, great that Jean-Claude's mind was changed, but a lot more minds still need changing. Many still insist there was no Holocaust. Way too many people don't even fucking know about the Holocaust anymore. Uh, ClaimsCon.org, the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, did the first ever 50-state survey on Holocaust knowledge for American millennials and Gen Zers in 2020. 63% of those surveyed did not know that 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. Over half of those thought the death toll was fewer than 2 million. Over 1 in 10 of those surveyed couldn't recall ever hearing the word Holocaust before, which is fucking troubling. Pew Foundation study survey uh, came to similar conclusions. So many people know so little about the Holocaust because they're just uninformed or... Do some of them just think it never happened? In the final days of the war, the Nazis themselves did a lot to give rise to deniers' uh, uh, you know, ability to think that in the wake of the war's end. Nazi Nazi party leaders made an enormous effort to destroy concentration camp documents, uh, the camps themselves, uh, the gas chambers. They don't want to be charged with war crimes. The Nazi contingency plan was always that if defeat was imminent, destroy German records. When Nazi leaders began to realize they would most likely be captured and brought to trial, they immediately you know, of course, began to dismantle anything and everything that had facilitated the Holocaust. Heinrich Himmler instructed his camp commandants to destroy records, crematoria, other signs of mass extermination. As one of many examples, the bodies of the 25,000 mostly Latvian Jews shot in Orega in late uh, 1941, they were actually dug up and burned in 1943 to destroy evidence. Similar operations undertaken at numerous other death camps. Collaborating governments also got in on this. They didn't want to get in trouble either. And occupied France, partly a result of French state secrecy rules dating back to well before the war, aimed at protecting the French government and the state from embarrassing revelations. Police destroyed nearly all of the massive archive of Jewish arrest and deportation records. Luckily, during and immediately after World War II, some people were concerned about documentation of the Holocaust disappearing, and they took action. By 1943, Isaac Schneerson, a French rabbi, founded a documentation center at his home in Grenoble with representatives from 40 other Jewish organizations. And in 1945, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander, future badass president. Eisenhower doesn't even have credit for being a great fucking president, actually. Yeah, he endorsed Tricky Dick, but he remembers the same party. You know, he's playing some, he had to do some political moves, yada, yada, but he's great. Uh, anyway, he anticipated that someday an attempt will be made to recharacterize the documentation of Nazis as propaganda, and he took steps against it. When he found the victims of Nazi concentration camps, Eisenhower ordered all possible photographs to be taken and for the German people from surrounding villages to be ushered through the camps. Made to bury the dead, he wanted them to fucking see it. On April 24th, 1945, Omar Bradley, a senior officer of the U.S. Army, who would oversee part of this process, would write, It is the desire of the theater commander 
that both still and moving pictures be utilized to the fullest extent practical. Uh, that's a weird word, practicable, as exhibits in reports of investigations of war crimes committed by the Nazis with particular reference to allied prisoners of war, both in and out of camps and to concentration camps for the purpose of recording for civilization the history of horror written by over five years of German atrocities. Good on them. Many of these pictures will be widely distributed, reproduced. Uh, some as postcards, pretty fucking dark postcard, but more evidence that all of this really happened. More evidence that deniers are out of their fucking minds. Some of the most common images were printed in small illustrated pamphlets by the U.S. Army shortly after the end of the war, distributed throughout Germany. Love it. So that ordinary citizens become aware of the crimes which were committed in their midst, in their names, and with their permission. I fucking love it. They knew that someday some people wouldn't say, uh, or some people would say, that that stuff hadn't actually happened. And they wanted to prevent that. And they prevented a lot of it, I think. But they wouldn't be able to prevent it entirely because, you know, you can't ever totally beat stupid with, with facts, right? Stupid just does whatever stupid wants. And one of those stupid people showed up just a few years after the end of the war. Let's meet the founders of Holocaust denial now. The first person to openly write uh, after the end of World War II that he doubted the reality of the Holocaust was French journalist Maurice Bardèche in his 1948 book, Nuremberg or the Promised Land. Maurice was a far-right French writer who argued against both the U.S. occupation of Europe and Soviet communism. To combat both of these, he argued for, he argued for a fascist-ruled Europe that wouldn't have the faults of Hitler and Mussolini's fascism and would implement a moral revolution, bolster the economy, prevent Europe from being swamped by foreign goods. What a fucking moron. People who actually want a dictator, always so short-sighted, right? Like maybe your dictator is good. Maybe your dictator will actually be an awesome leader and accomplish many great things, not be held back by having to make so many compromises, make so many fucking political deals, no opposition party, not cooperating for the sake of political optics, right? I get the appeal, but what about the next dictator or the one after that? Just because the first one's good, that doesn't mean the next one won't be a fucking monster. And that same system of checks and balances that can fuck over good attempts at improving improving society, at least you can also slow down, you know, policies that can destroy society. Maurice blamed fascism's enemies and a Jewish conspiracy for bringing Europe down, not Hitler's aggression in starting World War II. Many call him the father figure of Holocaust denial. He argued that the testimonies of those who'd been in concentration camps were not reliable uh, because they were, you know, they were Jews. (laughs) Seriously. They were Jews and communists. You know, you can't fucking trust them. Uh Uh-huh. He'd also say that there was no uh, systemic plan to eliminate the Jews, only a disorganization that occurred in camps once the tide turned against the Germans in World War II. He'd say the high mortality rate in concentration camps was due to the weakening of prisons and that only lice were gassed at Auschwitz. Uh, what did he say about all of Eisenhower's evidence? Uh, seems he was quiet, about, quiet on that front. Failed to address it. Uh, he was also staunchly anti-American. I imagine he would have just dismissed it uh, like he dismissed information coming from, you know, Jews and communists. Another father figure of Holocaust denial, French writer Paul Rosignier. Longtime communist. Rosignier, uh, arrested on October 30th, 1943 by members of the SD. For 11 days, this stupid motherfucker was interrogated. Uh, he got beat real bad, led to a broken jaw, crushed hand, ruptured kidney that would affect him later in life. Uh, Rosignier then deported to Germany, endured a three-day rail transport, ended January 30th, 1944 at Buchenwald, uh, that concentration camp. After three weeks in quarantine, became prisoner number 44364, uh, transported again to uh, Dora where V1 and V2 rockets were built in tunnels. Work conditions were terrible there. Hunger, disease, overwork, exhaustion, physical abuse resulted in a catastrophic death rate. 
despite all that, he'd survive, then go on incredibly to claim that the Holocaust never fucking happened. April 7th, 1945, he was evacuated from uh, the Dora uh, on what became a death train, endlessly traveled uh, the German rail network from one bombed out destination to another, no food, water, shelter. After several days of this, as the train rounded a bend, in spite of his terrible physical condition, he fucking jumped off. Thanks to the angle, he escaped uh, SS gunfire. American soldiers rescued him the next day, returned to France June 1945, awarded the ribbon of resistance, returned to a teaching post, but because of his physical condition, had to prematurely retire in 1950. Before that, 1948, Paul Rosignier, who had been at that point a history teacher for over 22 years, uh, distressed to read stories about concentration camps and deportation that he claimed weren't true. As he later explained in one of his books, The Lie of Ulysses, one day I realized that a false picture of the German camps had been created and that the problem of the concentration camps was a universal one, not just one that could be disposed of by placing it on the doorstep of the National Socialists. The deportees, many of whom were communists, had been largely responsible for leading international political thinking to such an erroneous conclusion. I suddenly felt that by remaining silent, I was an accomplice to a dangerous influence. Rosignier's first book, Crossing the Line, in 1949, an account of his experience in Buchenwald, was an immediate critical and commercial success. He claimed that many of the brutalities in the camp were committed not by the SS, but by communist prisoners who took over the prison and some kind of mafia. And they just, they ran shit. Rosnier blamed the high death rate uh, on the camps he saw on the communist corruption. Also, Rosnier, not Jewish, he wasn't placed in the same prisoner category and wasn't marked for death the same way. And his testimony, even if 100% true, why the fuck would anyone give it more weight than the testimony of thousands of others who were also in these camps saying the opposite thing, right? Numbers matter in situations like this. Uh, Rosnier's next book would take shit further. His second book, The Live Ulysses, A Glance at the Literature of Concentration Camp Inmates in 1950, caused uh, quite a bit of controversy. In it, he would describe his visits to Dachau and the uh, Mauthausen concentration camps, noting that in both places, he got contradictory stories on how the gas chambers were supposed to have worked. This marked the first time that Paul Rosnier expressed doubts at the existence of gas chambers and the Nazi policy of extermination. While this caused massive controversy in France, led to Rosnier being essentially deplatformed, it was a huge hit with a lot of people in Germany. Yay, we didn't do that. Ha, ah, I knew it. It was all Jewish lies. 1961, Rosnier returned to his earlier themes with Ulysses betrayed by his own an anthology of the speeches he gave during a 12-city lecture tour of Germany built around the third edition of The Lie. This tour was sponsored by Karl Heinz Priester, a former SS officer, one-time propagandist for Joseph Goebbels. So perfect. Of course that guy would love it. Then in 1964, with the drama of the European Jews, uh, Rosnier came to the conclusion that there was never an, an extermination policy from Nazi Germany. Ironically, that fucking idiot died at the age of 61. His kidneys fucking failed in the last two years of his life. Why, why did his kidneys fail? Because he got fucking beat by Nazis while in Buchenwald. God, dude had fucking Stockholm syndrome or something. His line of reasoning also uh, became popular in the U.S. Or, you know, this line of reasoning immediately after the war. Uh, backing up a bit, the 1930s, American historian Henry Elmer Barnes was a leading policy, uh, leading advocate, excuse me, of isolationism, a policy that the U.S. Uh, was not to get involved in World War II. And he considered Germany legitimate in bucking off the demands of the Treaty of Versailles. Then in 1939, Barnes published an article that claimed British diplomat Sir Robert Vanistart was scheming to commit aggression against Germany in the late 1930s. Vanistart then sued Barnes for libel. In a letter to his friend Oswald Villard, 
Barnes said that Vanistar's libel suit against him was a plot of the Jews and the Anti-Defamation League to intimidate American historians who proposed to tell the truth about the causes of the war. So, sounds like maybe somebody had an anti-Semitic axe to grind. 1940, the New York World Telegram newspaper dropped Barnes' weekly column because of his anti-Semitic you know, language. Barnes responded by saying that he was being forced out by a conspiracy against him involving M- M16 Intelligence Services, uh, House of Morgan, uh, all of the Jewish department store owners in New York City. Barnes alleged that the latter had threatened uh, the publisher of the New York World Telegram with the loss of all advertising if he kept me on any longer. A list of Barnes' writings, self-published after 1945. Barnes would later claim that a historical blackout covered up the real origins of World War II. In his 1947 pamphlet, The Struggle Against the Historical Blackout, Barnes claimed that court historians suppressed the fact that Hitler was the most reasonable leader in the world in 1939. In the same pamphlet, Barnes claimed that as part of the alleged smear campaign that had been committed against Germany, Allied governments falsely charged Germany with responsibility for crimes never committed. In a letter to his friend Charles Tansel in 1950, Barnes described German foreign policy in 1939 as the most reasonable of them all. In a 1953 essay, Revisionism and the Historical Blackout, which appeared in Barnes' self-published book, Perpetual War for the Perpetual Peace, he wrote, It is no exaggeration to say that the American smearbund, operating through newspaper editors and columnists, hatchet men, book reviewers, radio commentators, pressure group intrigue and espionage, excuse me, and academic pressures for f- and fears has accomplished about as much in the way of intimidating honest intellectuals in this country as Hitler, Goebbels, Himmler, the Gestapo, and concentration camps were able to do in Nazi Germany. Everyone's in on it. It's a big conspiracy, big Jewish conspiracy to suppress the truth. Hitler was a sweet man who just sounded angry in speeches because of the natural harshness of the German language. In a 1962 pamphlet, Revisionism and Brainwashing, Barnes claimed that there was a lack of any serious opposition or concerted challenge to the atrocity stories and other modes of defamation of German national character and conduct. And in 1963, Barnes self-published another pamphlet, Blasting the Historical Blackout, which claimed that even assuming that all the charges ever made by Nazis, by every, anybody of reasonable sanity and responsibility are true, the Allies did not come off much, if any, better. Around this time, Barnes started to cite the French Holocaust denier Paul Rosignier, whom Barnes described as a distinguished French historian, who would expose the exaggerations of the atrocity stories. Using Rosnier's as source, Barnes claimed that Germany was the victim of aggression in both 1914 and 1939, and that the historical, or that the Holocaust was just propaganda to justify aggression against Germany. Barnes claimed that in order to justify the horrors and evils of the Second World War, and al- the Allies made the Nazis the scapegoat by inventing the Holocaust wholesale. Uh, that's an interesting theory. Uh, you know, maybe I'd be into it if there wasn't so much fucking evidence to the contrary. Jewish concentration camp survivors in their 90s are still speaking of the horrors of these concentration camps. Why would they all still be lying? To what end? Why would many of them have the same fading Auschwitz tattoos? I mean, come on. Holocaust heavily documented uh, by so many people from so many different nations. Uh, Barnes, once highly regarded as a historian by the 1950s, had become the laughingstock, uh, lost credibility, became a professional pariah, and then he died in 1968. By that time, there were numerous other deniers publishing the same old bullshit he spewed. 1976, Arthur Butts, a tenure, that's a great name, Mr. Butts, a tenure professor by electrical engineering, or uh, excuse me, of electrical engineering at Northwestern University, published The Hoax of the 20th Century, The Case Against the Presumed Extermination of the European Jewry. Despite his colleagues protesting and demanding that he be fired, 
tenure and academic freedom have protected butts to this day from dismissal. That elderly fucking moron is still a professor at Northwestern. Uh, If you want to grill him on his anti-Semitic leanings, his office phone number, I was able to track down his website. It's 847-491-3269. You can ask for Mr. Butts. 847-491-3269. You can email him. Butts, B-U-T-Z, at E-C-E dot Northwestern dot E-D-U. I bet he'd fucking love to hear from a lot of you. Call him, uh, email him, you know, uh, you know, just, uh, just, just to talk, just to learn. Just really, you know, say whatever you feel to him. Uh, 1977, Britain's David Irving, who would go on to be the most well-known Holocaust denier in the world, wrote the sadly popular Hitler's World. Uh, 1978, the American far-right activist Willis Cardo founded the Institute for Historical Review, an organization dedicated to publicly challenging the commonly accepted view of the Holocaust. 1980, the IHR promised a $50,000 reward to anyone who could prove the Jews were gassed at Auschwitz. Then someone who was there fucking took him up on it. Mel uh, Mermelstein, a a Czech-born Jew, wrote a letter to the editors of the Los Angeles Times saying he had proof. The IHR wrote back, offered him $50,000 for proof the Jews were in fact gassed at Auschwitz. Uh, So Mel submitted a notarized account of his uh, internment at Auschwitz, how he personally witnessed Nazi guards ushering his own fucking mom and two sisters towards the gas chamber number five. Uh, Mel was the only survivor of his family. Despite this, the IHR refused to pay the reward. Mel then went and fucking sued him, and a judge ruled that IHR had to pay uh, $90,000 to Mermelstein and issue a letter of apology to Mr. Mel Mermelstein, survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau and Buchenwald, and uh, excuse me, all other survivors of Auschwitz for pain, anguish, and suffering caused to them. Fucking love it. But of course, the legal victory didn't put an end to Holocaust denial. 1987, Bradley R. Smith, former media director of the Institute for Historical Review, founded the Committee for Open Debate on the Holocaust. In the U.S., CODO has repeatedly attempted to place advertisements questioning whether the Holocaust happened, especially in college campus newspapers. Reaching out to college students was Smith's big aim. As he put it, I don't want to spend time with adults anymore. I want to go to students. They are superficial. They are empty vessels to be filled. What I wanted to do was I wanted to set forth three or four ideas that students might be interested in that might cause them to think about or have questions about these things. And I wanted to make it as simple as possible and set it up in a way that could not really be debated. God, sound like this guy would have been a fucking great Hitler youth recruiter. One of the most famous instances of Holocaust denial came from a man named Ernest Zundel. Ernst Zundel. Uh, for much of the 20th, second half of the 20th century, Ernst Zundel turned out books, posters, and memorabilia denying the Holocaust from a ramshackle Victorian house in central Toronto, Canada. Uh, here, here's titles of the two most popular books. Uh, the Hitler We Loved and Why and UFOs, Nazi Secret Weapons. So he seems super credible. Not even a little bit wackadoodle. Uh, Zundel will be, will be convicted twice in 1985 and 1988 under Canadian law that criminalized false news that caused or was likely to cause harm to the public. Zundel showed up at court wearing a hard hat and a bulletproof vest claiming to be a victim of a conspiracy to silence him. Fuck yeah. Uh, 1988, Fred uh, Lecter of Malden, Massachusetts, was contacted on behalf of Zundel during his uh, second trial. Paid by Zundel, I think it's actually Luchter, Luchter visited the site of Auschwitz-Birkenau and the uh, Majdanek, another, sorry, that one I don't know the pronunciation of, uh, Majdanek death camps. Upon returning to the U.S., he published a lengthy report which concluded the facilities examined 
could not have then been utilized or seriously considered to function as execution gas chambers. During the Zundel trial, however, it became increasingly clear that something was wrong with the Luchter report. As it turned out, Mr. Luchter had no credentials as an engineer. In fact, he only had a bachelor's degree in history. Fucking love it. I don't have any credibility when it comes to history either, academically, which is uh, why I employ one researcher from Princeton, another from uh, Clemson. More importantly, why we include dozens of sources, uh, sources that are written by highly accredited and educated historians, investigative journalists, nonprofit, nonpartisan think tanks, other noted academics, right? You can find the full notes, really more of a script that I finalized before ever recording on the TimeSuck app. Tons of links in every episode. And those links don't take you to slanderous douchebags like Ernst Zundel. Uh, Luchter's bizarre explanation that anyone who went to college knew enough mathematics and science to be an engineer raised a lot of eyebrows. Judge Ronald Thomas listened to excerpts from the Luchter report, then castigated the author for his methodology, which he labeled preposterous. The judge is like, this is preposterous. Uh, before ruling that Luchter has no experience. Luchter's complete and utter lack of credentials resulted in more than just embarrassment at this uh, Zunder trial. Uh, Luchter, who had represented himself as an engineer and execution expert to various government agencies for years, indicted by the state of Massachusetts for fraud. Faced with the possibility of jail time and convicted, Luchter reached a pretrial agreement with the court, which he admitted uh, that he was not and had never been registered as a professional engineer. Although he had represented himself as an engineer, able to consult in areas of engineering concerning execution technology, which was nonsense as part of an agreement, court agreement, Luchter uh, agreed to cease and desist from distribution of any more engineering reports. An analysis of the Luchter report by Professor George Wellers at Sorbonne University in Paris concluded Lecter's calculations to be an absurdity. One can see in many ways to what degree this expert chemist, uh, Wellers was unaware that Luchter had no degree in any science, is operating outside the realities <laughs> of the problem. Concluding the analysis, Wellers characterized Luther's interpretation as false and absurd from start to end. So despite his embarrassment from both academic as well as legal circles, uh, Luther didn't just go away. He took his dog and pony denier show to Germany, where he was arrested. Arrested in October 1993 on charges of inciting racial hatred. He was then released on bail, allowed to return to the U.S. pending trial. Uh, he then uh, refused to return to Ger Germany for the trial and a warrant for his arrest still outstanding. Despite the exposure of the self-styled engineer and his report is fraudulent, both he and Zundel still held in high esteem among Holocaust deniers, uh, Holocaust revisionists, truthers. Though Ernst Zundel's uh, dead now, he died in August 2017. Uh, David Irving, who I mentioned a bit ago, he's still alive. 84-year-old Irving, his twin brother Nicholas, born in Hutton in Essex, England. Their father, John James Caudill uh, Irving, was a career naval officer and a commander in the Royal Navy. Their mother, Beryl Irving, illustrator and writer of children's books. Despite seeming to have awesome parents, he would turn out to be a real uh, piece of shit. Actually, maybe both his parents weren't uh, totally awesome. His, uh, his dad, maybe not the best father, not for a while. During World War II, John was an uh, officer aboard the light cruiser HMS Edinburgh. On uh, August April 30th, 1942, the ship was badly damaged by a German submarine then attacked by air. Now beyond recovery, the ship was abandoned. And though John survived, he severed all ties with his wife and kids after the incident. So weird. Weird that David's uh, later actions, or maybe uh, maybe David's later actions are a rejection of the war that cost him his dad. I don't know. According to his brother, Nicholas, David was a prankster as a kid, depending on your definition of a, a prank. Nicholas uh, said David used to run towards bombed out housings or bombed out houses shouting Heil Hitler. What a, what a classic gag. 
So funny. What a funny guy. David would later uh, deny that. He went on to study physics for a year at Imperial College in London, then dropped out with enough money to attend for a second year. Uh, He would try again at the University College in London in economics, political science, and would then drop out again. Uh, What? Holocaust and I are two-time college dropout? Who would have guessed? While he was going to school, David became the editor of Carnival Times, a student magazine, where he added a secret supplement that contained an article in which he called Hitler the greatest unifying force Europe has known. There was also another article where he wrote that the British press was controlled by the Jews. David then tried to join the Royal Air Force, but deemed medically unfit. What? A two-time college dropout. And the Air Force didn't want it. I'm surprised uh, such a big Hitler fan wasn't the cream of the crop. After that, he left for West Germany, where he worked as a steel worker, learned German, then went to Spain, worked as a clerk at an airbase. His first book, The Destruction of Dresden, was an examination of the Allied bombing of Dresden in February 1945. Now attempting to reconcile with whether or not bombing German civilians was ethical, people in the UK went out in droves to buy the book, making it a bestseller. Fuck. Now he's a bestselling author. I was hoping his backstory would just be a steady stream and nothing but failure. But I guess if that was true, how would he become a well-known Holocaust denier? In his first edition, Irving's uh, estimates for the number of civilian deaths in Dresden was between 100,000 and 250,000, notably higher than most previously published figures. And these figures were quite simply just not true. Uh, A book being a bestseller doesn't mean it isn't uh, also a big bundle of lies. He based his estimates on the word of one dude who provided no supporting documentation. Uh, Used a document forged by Joseph Goebbels, literal Nazi propagandist, didn't check any of his sources against any other claims. Uh, His one witness was not a military historian or even a historian at all. He was a fucking urologist who he identified as Dresden's deputy chief medical officer. And this doctor later complained about being misidentified by David Irving and said that he, he was just repeating some rumor he heard estimating the death toll. So nice, right? Fuck yeah. Uh, His his one important source went on record basically saying, "I, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Some dude just said some shit to me. And I pass that shit along to fucking David Dealing. I don't know. According to an investigation by Dresden City Council in 2008, casualties at Dresden estimated to be around 25,000 dead. But Irving's claim made it seem like the Allies had been far more cavalier with collateral damage in this instance, maybe displaying cruelty on par with the Holocaust, which is not true. Terrible logic, uh, even if it was true, right? Even if Allies had killed, well, uh, you know, between, I don't know, 10, 20 million innocent people like Nazis did, even if they killed a fucking hundred million innocent people, that still wouldn't make the Holocaust less evil. I, I understand the uh, uh, the concept of two wrongs don't make a right. I feel like I understood it when I was in grade school. David seems unable to grasp it. So what actually happened in Dresden? February 13th, 1945, the Allies began a massive three-day bombing attack. 800 bomber raid dropped some 2,700 tons of explosives and incendiaries, decimated the German city. When the German Luftwaffe destroyed and... Uh, Anti-aircraft defenses were in shambles. The Royal Air Force lost only six planes. On the ground, however, thousands of small fires merged into a powerful firestorm, created such powerful winds that it sucked oxygen, fuel, broken structures, innocent people into its flames. It was fucking terrible. No doubt about it. Massive atrocity. But again, not the Holocaust. Uh, It wasn't done with the intention of only killing innocent people and on racial grounds, no less. Uh, The bombings happened because Dresden was a major center for Nazi Germany's rail and road network. If the Allies clogged up those transportation networks, it would greatly hinder the Nazi war machine that was killing a couple million innocent people a year when you count ethnic Slavs, POWs, etc. It was also carried out to terrify German civilians 
in order to break the propaganda machine that had been telling them for years that Nazi Germany was invincible. In the end, dead German civilians numbered around, yeah, 25,000. Irving ran with the claim that Dresden was a historical abnormality. He would claim in the destruction of Dresden that the bombing was the biggest single massacre in European history, the Hiroshima of Germany. But that wasn't close to the truth. By the late 1980s, Irving had placed himself outside the mainstream study of history and begun to turn from softcore to hardcore Holocaust denial. Now he argued Hitler didn't know about the extermination of Jews or that if he did, he opposed it, which we know is nuts, right? Uh, We talked about that before. Uh, You know, if we need another reminder about what Hitler knew, uh, this is what Hitler wrote about Jewish people in Mein Kampf, or at least about how he felt about Jewish people, another reminder, published way back in 1925, I will uh, read it to the uh, only music that I, f- I feel uh, is really fitting for a passage like this. Of his satanic joy in his face, the black-haired Jewish youth looks in wait for the unsuspecting girl whom he defiles with his blood, thus stealing her from her people. With every means he tries to destroy the racial foundations of the people he has set out to subjugate. Just as he himself systematically ruins women and girls, he does not shrink back from pulling down the blood barriers for others, even on a large scale. For racially pure people, which is conscious of its blood, can never be enslaved by the Jew. In this world, he will forever be master over bastards and bastards alone. And so he tries systematically to lower the racial level by a continuous poisoning of individuals. Culturally, he contaminates art, literature, and theater, makes a mockery of natural feeling, overthrows all concepts of beauty and sublimity of the noble and the good, and instead drags men down into the sphere of his own base nature. But anyway, back to David Irving. Though he would publish several books and sell way too many of them, he would also be challenged by others who wanted to see the truth prevail. In 1993, Deborah Lidstadt wrote a book called Denying the Holocaust, which sharply criticized Holocaust deniers, especially Irving. In the book, Lipstadt named Irving as one of the more dangerous deniers because he was a published author and viewed by some as a legitimate military historian, even though he wasn't. He was familiar with historical evidence, she wrote, and bends it until it conforms with his ideological leanings and political agenda. In 1996, David Irving would sue Lipstadt for libel, even though Irving had made so many uh, claims, including one that more women died in the backseat of Edward Kennedy's car than ever died in the gas chamber of Auschwitz. He claimed Lipstadt's book damaged his reputation. American historian Christopher Browning would come on as one of Lipstadt's witnesses, writing a comprehensive essay for the court that detailed all the evidence that the Holocaust had taken place. Another historian out of Cambridge University, Richard Evans, would spend two years examining Irving's writings, showing how he'd made misrepresentations, including knowingly forging documents. After a two-month trial in London, the trial judge, Justice Charles Gray, issued a 333-page ruling against Irving, referring to him as a Holocaust denier and right-wing pro-Nazi polemicist. Later courts would give similar rulings. In 2022, the United Nations even adopted a resolution aimed at combating Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. The resolution was proposed by Germany and Israel. To this day, Holocaust survivors and their families uh, continue to raise awareness about how well-documented the Holocaust was. You can find tens of thousands of first-hand videotaped accounts just at the USC Shoah Foundation's website. You can spend months listening to documented accounts of people who witnessed Hitler's racial destruction, people who lost their families to Nazi death camps, people who lived in Nazi death camps. Archives are amazing, so important. Holocaust survivor, Nobel Peace winner, uh, Eli Wiesel, Wiesel, during the 1999 discussion at the White House in Washington, D.C., called the Holocaust the most documented tragedy 
in recorded history. Never before has a tragedy elicited so much, so much witness from the victims, uh, from the killers. Sorry, my voice is just dying. From the victims and even from the bystanders, millions of pieces here in the museum, what you have, all of the museums, archives in the thousands, in the millions. Incredibly, even former Nazis have spoken out against denial. Hans Munch, an Auschwitz physician, consider the facts of the Holocaust so firmly determined that one cannot have any doubt. Describe those who negate what happened as malevolent. A man whose job it was to handle Zyklon B, a substance that killed thousands, right? Joseph Kerr said anyone who maintains that nobody was gassed at Auschwitz is crazy or wrong. Another Nazi, Oswald Kaduk, said he did not consider those who maintain such beliefs as normal people. One Nazi, Oscar Groening, would even address Holocaust deniers directly saying, I would like you to believe me. I saw the gas chambers. I saw the crematoria. I saw the open flames. I was on the ramp when the selections took place. I would like you to believe that these atrocities happened because I was there straight from the mouths of Nazis, right? But hey, as we've learned with many conspiracy here, like the Flat Earth Conspiracy, Hollow Earth, Pizzagate, QAnon, where there's a will, there's a way. If people want to believe in something, no matter how fucking stupid it is, no matter how hard it flies in the face of reason and sanity, they'll just believe it. Evidence is irrelevant, right? To the true hardcore conspiratorial mind, cognitive dissonance is strong. Now, since we've covered the big two uh, ways that Germany and Holocaust deniers have thought about the Holocaust, let's recap the Holocaust. As we learned so much over these past two episodes, right? Uh, or as we've learned, once he became chancellor of Germany, Hitler began a systematic campaign to strip Jews of their property and their jobs in academia, the judiciary, the military, and the civil service. Synagogues defiled and burned. Jewish businesses boycotted or shut down. The Nuremberg Laws in 1935 then denied Jews their German citizenship, forbade Jews to marry non-Jews, and took away most of their political rights. Jews became scapegoats for everything awful that had happened to Germany over the previous several decades. Inflation, economic depression, the loss of World War I, the punitive treaty of Versailles. This radicalization culminated in a plan that Nazi leaders referred to as the final solution to the Jewish question. The final solution was the organized systematic murder of European Jews. Nazi German regime implemented this genocide between 1941-1945, killing 6 million Jews and 5 million others. One method of execution, mass shooting, right? At least 5 million others. German units carried out mass shootings on the outskirts of villages, towns, cities throughout Eastern Europe. The other method was asphyxiation with poison gas, gassing operations conducted at killing centers and with mobile gas vans. Roughly 6 million Jews killed simply because Nazi Germany deemed them unworthy of life. Today, many of the dwindling number of victims of the Holocaust who are still alive continue to share their stories. I hope you're lucky enough to hear some of them firsthand. You can at least find uh, their testimony on YouTube, elsewhere. You can visit many of the former concentration camps. Now many of them function in museums, memorials. Today, Auschwitz is a museum recalling the evil that humans are capable of inflicting on one another. I hope I can visit it someday. I've I've never been to Germany. Uh, Tour groups quietly shuffle from an exhibit holding two tons of, of hair shaved from the victims of gas chambers, two tons to the empty field where the gas chambers once stood. Emblazoned on the gates is the slogan, never again. You know what many have taken to mean is a rallying cry against genocide in general, a phrase that reminds the world not to stand idly by while people are suffering at the hands of their own government. Luckily, the government of Germany would also, after a time of chaos and uncertainty, step in to reconcile with their history after the Allies began that work. The Nuremberg trials would hold Nazi officials accountable, be broadcast to millions of people, showed that the, these men had orchestrated millions of murders. And the trial of Adolf Eichmann would lead philosopher Hannah Arendt to dub the term banality of evil, meaning that everyday evilness 
meaning the everyday evilness of otherwise intelligent, capable, actually seemingly decent people in many ways who just don't think critically about their world and their actions. West Germany would make reparations to Israel, pass laws making it illegal to deny the Holocaust, promote Nazism. Then after reunification with East Germany, the state would formally apologize for its actions during World War II and the Holocaust. Many memorials and museums stand tribute to the victims of the Holocaust in Germany and across Europe. Unfortunately, despite so much evidence, there are still those that deny that the Holocaust ever took place or that it was a deliberate murder of Jews and other minorities. There are many in Germany today that think the Holocaust shouldn't be discussed so much. Uh, there are those who think, you know, Germany's apologized enough. Reminds me of lawmakers in several U.S. state houses that have been trying for the past few years to keep teachers from properly teaching about how slavery was in integral to America's founding, right? They feel that it's uh, too divisive. Makes white kids feel too bad about their heritage. Those lawmakers are fucking idiots. Understanding the sins of your ancestors, being punished for them today, two different things. Outside the arrest of, uh, you know, a few remaining Nazis, almost no one is trying to punish modern Germans for the sins of their Nazi forefathers. Almost no one's trying to punish modern white people for the sins of slavery. Acknowledgement, atonement is not punishment. Acknowledgement and atonement is a wonderful thing. It leads to healing, it prevents denial, and it decreases the odds that we'll repeat the sins of the past. Those lawmakers need to learn some fucking lessons in empathy. Or maybe they know those lessons. And they're just pushing for what they're pushing for because they know it'll play well to their bases. Why try and inspire people to be better when you can play to their worst instincts? Maybe uh, win an election. Fucking politicians. There are some good ones. But overall, uh, I might rather uh, hang out with a bunch of serial killers more than politicians. At least I know where the serial killers stand. Historians, Holocaust survivors, governments still trying to combat Holocaust denial today. Still fighting people. Often, uh, you know, posing as legitimate historians like David Irving, using fake prestige as truther types to advance hateful and prejudiced messages. Right? Let's, uh, let's fight that. Let's, let's fight those uh, prejudiced messages. We have so much information out there on the Holocaust. It's so fucking documented. If you don't believe it happened, it's just because you don't want to. You can tell yourself you have nothing against the Jews. So you're not racist, but you're lying. You're not extra curious. You just don't trust real history. You don't trust real experts. That doesn't make you an independent thinker a truther, a brave searcher for the, for the real truth that makes you a fool, a clown. That's not quite right. I think it makes you a cunt, a pathetic, atrocity-denying, anti-Semitic, hateful cunt. So maybe don't be a cunt. Maybe help the rest of us try and make uh, sure something like that doesn't ever happen again. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Holocaust continues to be an important area for study for everyone, not just Germans or Jews, to understand how prejudice works and how to identify it. Important reminder for us all to not allow a race or cultural group to be scapegoated for societal problems that are objectively not their fault. Good reminder of how ideas that claim to be scientific or rational are sometimes mindless instruments of hate. A reminder how we need to think critically about the systems we live and operate in. Number two, the process of getting Germany to reconcile with the Holocaust, not a straightforward one. Though Germany now credited with being one of the most tolerant progressive governments, the initial days after World War II marked by chaos, perhaps even an increase in hatred and violence, many Germans now saw themselves as true victims. However, the Allies' actions, coupled with some individual activists, created an atmosphere to allow for acceptance, atonement, apology, and healing. And Germany continues to deal with the dark legacy of the Nazis, with thought-provoking monuments and the prosecution of Nazis today, some of them who are now over 100 years old. Number three, Holocaust denial is the belief that the Holocaust never happened or wasn't sanctioned 
or happened very differently from historical accounts. These, uh, you know, positations try to point out factual inaccuracies, but actually just make up fake numbers and fake witnesses to peddle hate and bigotry. So fuck you, David Irving. Number four, Hannah Arendt coined the term banality of evil to describe the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the man who, uh, in, in, you know, in charge of the Holocaust, who seemed to everyone watching his trial more like a sad, wussy kind of guy than some menacing evil monster. Seemed like there was no way a bunch of ordinary, kind of dumb, regular bureaucrats could do something so evil. But Hannah said this was precisely what was wrong with our vision of evil. Evil's not a monster lurking somewhere in the woods. It's an ordinary person who doesn't think critically about the evil shit they're being asked to do. So think critically, meet sex. Don't be any kind of evil, not even the boring kind. Number five, new info. Where the fuck was my dad in the 1930s and 1940s? Is he responsible for the Holocaust? I mean, he says he wasn't born yet, but anyone can forge a birth certificate. I don't know. I'm not great with guessing ages. Maybe like he says, he's 68 or maybe he's 98 and he's got 30 extra years of secrets he's hiding. So many mysteries with that slippery son of a bitch. Uh, Real new info now, uh, Putin has said he's denazifying Ukraine, right? What does that mean? February of 2022, resident, you know, or Russian president, resident, Russian president, Vladimir Putin, invoked World War II to justify Russia's invasion of Ukraine, saying in televised remarks that his uh, uh, offensive aimed to denazify the country, whose democratically elected president, just to remind everyone, uh, is Jewish, both parents, and he's uh, someone who actually lost relatives in the Holocaust. So probably not a big Nazi guy, just guessing. Putin said, the purpose of this operation is to protect people who for eight years now have been facing humiliation and genocide perpetuated by Kiev regime. To this end, we will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, as well as bring to trial those who perpetrated uh, numerous bloody crimes against civilians, including uh, against citizens of Russian Federation. Also, I, Vladimir Putin, son of Vladimir, Russia's strongest pony boy will soon be releasing another hot banger that I wrote on all streaming platforms and the money will proceed will go to denazify uh, Ukraine. I call this next song that I write and sing by myself uh, Desperado. Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? Never come to senses. You just, you keep out there riding your fences for, for so long now. Just so much fences. You're, you're a hard one. I know you've got your reasons. I know I get it. I really do. These things that are pleasing you can, they can hurt you somehow. Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, boy! Don't do that! She'll beat your heart if she's able! You know she's queen of hearts! It's always best to bet, now it seems to me! You know? Some fine things have been laid upon your table! Uh, you, got nice, you got a nice table, but you're the only one who wants what you can't get, and that's Ukraine. <laughs> but you keep trying. Desperado. Oh, you ain't getting any younger. But you're still strong, pony boy. You're painting your hunger. They're driving you home. Probably back to Russia, because you will lose. <laughs> I get it, but no, I, I win. Freedom. 
That's just people talking. You know, you people talking to you in the prison of, of Jewish lies. God damn it. Desperado, don't get your feet snow cold in winter. You get it. You get it. Uh, Putin's Russian invasion of Ukraine, his language of denazification, his perceived pretext for it, quickly drew backlash from many world leaders, onlookers and experts. It's total and complete bullshit. Part of the broader pattern of Russian propaganda, we learned about a few episodes back, frequently painting Ukraine's elected leaders as Nazis and fascists, oppressing local ethnic Russians uh, that it claims needs to be liberated. Uh, Neo-Nazi, far-right, xenophobic groups do exist in Ukraine, like they do in pretty much every, you know, other Western and your European country, including Russia, but they're not a state apparatus. They have no influence in the government. They're just some random dickheads who happen to live there. In response to Putin's accusations, Ukraine's official Twitter account posted a cartoon of Putin and Hitler gazing lovingly into one another's eyes, writing that this is not a meme, but our and your reality right now. Gotta fucking love Ukraine. Hail Ukraine. Tough motherfuckers and uh, good sense of humor. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, among others, has said Putin has misrepresented and misappropriated Holocaust history. Lengthy list of historians, right? We talked about this in the Putin episode, signed a letter condemning the Russian government's line of thinking. Posted all around the internet. NPR reposted it. Factcheck.org. Right, again, I mentioned it. It says, uh, we strongly reject the Russian government's uh, cynical abuse of the term genocide, the memory of World War II and the Holocaust, and the equation of the Ukrainian state with the Nazi regime to justify its unprovoked aggression. This rhetoric is factually wrong, morally repugnant, deeply offensive to the memory of millions of victims of Nazism and those who courageously fought against it, including Russian and Ukrainian soldiers of the Red Army. We do not idealize the Ukrainian state and society like any other country. It has right-wing extremists and violent xenophobic groups. Ukraine also ought to better confront the darker chapters of its painful and complicated history. Yet, none of this justifies the Russian aggression and gross mischaracterization of Ukraine. So, another example of just how important it is to learn about real history. So we don't get so we don't get tricked by people who make up fake history. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Holocaust two of two, fallout atonement and denial has been sucked. Barely meet sex. Man, my fucking body is working against me. COVID been fucking me up this week. I'm about five days out, six days out from getting it, and thought like my voice would hold for a couple hours, but not so much, but hopefully it's listenable. Uh, thank you to Space Lizards for uh, choosing such an important topic. Felt like I was back in school these past two weeks in the best of ways. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of uh, Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for having to do a lot of production on this one. A lot of stop downs, a lot of tea drinking. Uh, thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan, the Art Warlock, Keith, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Running socials with Lizzie Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to Sophie Evans for uh, more initial research this week. Thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cold of the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Becky, Jesse, the Mod Squad. Now making sure Discord keeps running smooth. And Reverend Dr. Joe, co-host of his new show, Can You Don't, uh, as well doing that. Next week, taking a break from genocide, serial killing, and a ruthless Russian dictator to get weird and silly again with another cult, cult, cult episode. Ever since I watched a not, uh, Netflix docuseries a couple years ago called Wild Wild Country, I wanted to suck the Rajneesh Puram Antelope Oregon Cult, also called the Rajneeshi Cult. Imagine you're a resident of a small ranching town in the middle of nowhere. You move from the city to live a quiet, peaceful life. You know all your neighbors, only about 50 of them. You go to the town cafe, excuse me, attend church on Sunday. Life's predictable, no surprises. 
One day you read the news and see that a religious leader in India has purchased a massive ranch near your, near your town. Sounds strange, but you put it out of your mind until the first wave of people dressed in crimson clothing shows up. They tell you they're the followers of the Bhagwan Rajneesh. They just want to farm the land. More and more of them keep coming, bringing strange ideas, practices that don't fit in with the ideals of small town America. They worship a man who claims that religion has no meaning. They have wild sex parties. They violently assault each other during what is supposed to be meditation sessions. They start to encroach upon your town little bit by little bit till the streets that used to be empty are now full of people dressed in red, the Rajneeshis. 1981, residents of the tiny, roughly 50-person town of Antelope, Oregon suddenly had a whole bunch of new neighbors, right? Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh and his cult of uh, Sanisans fled India, purchased a ranch down in the middle of rural Oregon, claiming they wanted to just, you know, farm the land, live in peace, but that wasn't exactly true. What Rajneesh really wanted to do was essentially form a new nation inside of an existing nation. Wanted to build a city that would serve as a haven for an eventual 100,000 followers who worshiped him. He and his people terrified people in Antelope. Bhagwan uh, preached a new religion that rejected religion. The idea of a, uh, of a new man not bound by rules, but living in harmony with himself and the world. Claimed he was enlightened. And if you followed his ways, you could be enlightened too. One of his most famous quotes is, I'm here to seduce you into a love of life to help you become a little more poetic, to help you die to the mundane and to the ordinary so the extraordinary explodes in your life. And, uh, well, a lot, lot of shit happened that uh, I'm going to save my voice for on this preview. And just uh, next week, hopefully my voice is full strength and you're going to hear a cult, cult, cult episode. Right now, let's use the last of my voice today for this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Start off with no surprises, a Holocaust update. An anonymous night shift nurse writes, Greetings all you beautiful sexy meat sex. Praise be to Nimrod and Master Prophet Mushmouth. Glory hole to the curvaceous Lucifina. Hail Triple M and good boy Bojangles. Although I'm about 80% sure Bojangles is not a real dog. Got a Holocaust update. Holocaust update for y'all. I'm a nurse and have been in this god-awful, back-breaking, varicose vein starting, tear-jerking, soul-sucking profession for a little over a decade. Seen a lot of shit that'll make you actively lose hope in humanity, but sometimes, semicolon, I get to meet unbelievable people with unimaginable stories. About eight, nine years ago at a nursing home I worked in, we had an admission for a female resident. The nurse that was supposed to take over the assessment and inventory was swamped, asked me if I could lend a hand. I walked into her room, a 250-pound bearded man full of tattoos and one-inch stretched ears, and I started asking some basic info while performing my assessment. We started some chit-chat, small talk about the weather and shit, at a certain point, she points to a guillotine on my arm and says, I like your tattoos. I chuckled at the fact that this was the one she liked. I feel like we developed a good rapport. Uh, she seemed comfortable with me. So I say, oh yeah, me too. What about you? You got any ink? She just keeps looking at me, almost like she didn't hear me. Then she looks down, lifts her arm out from under the covers. And she says, they gave me this back in Germany. It was her fucking number from Auschwitz. I was shook to my very core. I'd never met a Holocaust survivor. Had so many questions, was so curious, but reading the situation, didn't want to bombard her with questions, seeing as uh, this is very obviously a sensitive fucking subject. She went on over the next few days to tell me more and more about her life in Germany, what her school was like, what her family was like, how she had many cats and dogs, etc. I could tell she was warming up to me, confession time. I admit, even though we should treat all patients equally, I couldn't help but give her more attention. I mean, fucking hell. She survived the Nazi death machine. I gathered up the nerve one day, I asked her what life was like during the crazy days of World War II. I felt weird asking it, but a firsthand account from a concentration camp survivor, I had to ask. I said, what was life back then? Or what was life like back then? 
I asked her timidly and softly. She replied, life? We were not living. There was no life back then for people like us. Every day was death. Always wondering if today is going to be your last. After that, she started to tell me more. I couldn't uh, believe hearing her stories from the camp she was in. Heartbreaking, knowing that that kind of evil resides in the hearts and twisted minds of men. I'll never forget her. Even though the time we spent together was brief, I think about her the more all these years later. It blows my mind, boils my blood, hearing shit that Holocaust deniers say. Anyways, love you guys from the very tip of my penis. As a creepy space lizard dummy, love all the shows and new one soon. Three and a half stars, wouldn't change a thing. Suck my dick, Logan. Hallowed be Lindsay's name. Deuce is space lizard. When in doubt, freak him out. Well, what a perfect update. Anonymous night nurse. That must've been so intense. What a thing to carry for decades. Not just the memories of all that you endured, but the actual tattoo. To see it day in and day out, a scarlet letter for a sin that wasn't a sin. Right? I'd, I'd, I'd give her more attention too. Man, after all this she went through. Fuck, holy shit. How awesome she spoke to you about it. I wonder how many saw her tattoo over the years and you know, asked her questions, how many she spoke with. Wonder if she prevented anyone or multiple people from becoming more Holocaust deniers. Thanks for sharing her story. So more you know, people can hear a bit of what you heard. Now for another Holocaust update from Sweet Sack, Mashaila Peterson. Uh, I'm not sure you know this, but your name very similar to uh, Masha Allah, an Arabic phrase used to express a feeling of awe or beauty regarding an event or person that was just mentioned. Anyway, uh, Mashaila writes, Hi, Dan and everyone. Three, three, uh, three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Just wanted to give some uh, info on a name you mentioned in part one. After reading her book so many times, even doing my research papers uh, for finals on her book and other twins that suffered at the hands of Dr. Mengele, Eva Moses Kaur has an insane story. Her book is called Surviving the Angel of Death, in which she outlines experiments her and her twin sister went through. I won't tell too much. Uh, I won't tell too much. This book is her story to tell, but the amazing meat sack ended up founding the Candles Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Candles is an acronym for Children of Auschwitz Nazi Deadly Lab Experiment Survivors. It had been destroyed by an arsonist, rebuilt by this crazy meat sack. I feel like I've mentioned it before. Uh, anyway, also she gave a speech about forgiving but never forgetting for what happened in teaching others that philosophy. Holy cows, it was way longer than I wanted it to be, but I had to spread the word about this undertalked and wicked meat sack. Hail Nimrod, praiseable jangles. Thanks, Mashaila. Uh, well, yes, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, Eva Moses Kaur, amazing meat sack. She passed away in 2019 at age 85. Her twin sister Miriam died in 1993, age 59. And how fucking sad that that museum was burned, but how wonderful that she led the charge to have it rebuilt. To hate Jewish people so much, to be so ignorant you want to burn a museum of theirs. What a horrible place you've allowed your mind and heart to descend to. What a sad way to go through this life with that much nonsensical anger and ignorance. Thanks for sharing that uh, message. Now, world-traveling sack Jack Jones gives us another Nazi update. He writes, Hey, Dan, love the show as always. After hearing what will be covered next week, I thought I'd write in, in part, uh, ahead of part two, give you an interesting bit of history related to Nazi and collaborator executions post-World War II. Half of my family's Danish, and as a result, it's uh, somewhere I desperately wanted to travel. Finally got that chance in 2017 when I traveled to Scandinavia. Good amount of my time was spent in Copenhagen, during which time I, visit, I visited Christiania. What is Christiania? It's a decommissioned island, military base from World War II, that, taken over, that was taken over by anarcho-communists in 1971 and until this day is recognized as a sovereign nation by the Danish government. Drug laws, taxation, other laws, regulations created by the Danish government 
don't exist for those who live there. Uh, I went there to buy some weed. It's pretty cool. But that's not why I mentioned it. One of the reasons I wanted to go there was to see the remnants of what was called the shooting shed. The shooting shed was a small building constructed on the base after the war ended, during which time Denmark suspended their ban on capital punishment and executed 30 men, some captured Nazis and Danish collaborators. The floor of the shed was a concrete slab with a floor drain. And according to some accounts, during the executions, they had to stop and clear the grate of the drain because it was clogged with brains and skull fragments and blood pooling on the floor. Well, we found what was left, just a concrete slab with a drain, and I was able to take a picture on top of it. Gotta say, standing where some of the most evil bastards to ever walk the earth had their brains blown out was pretty damn satisfying and darkly fascinating. Anyway, just a cool personal connection to the topic that, uh, at hand I thought you might enjoy. I attached a picture of me standing on the shed floor. Even though I look goofy as fuck, still one of my favorite picks ever taken of me. Hope you enjoy it. Keep on sucking. Jack Jones. Well, Jack, I got your pick. And I would have taken the same one. Fucking, Yeah. I mean, that is so fascinating to stand at the exact spot on earth where not that long ago, some men who made some truly evil choices stood for the last time on earth. Shit like that makes history feel so extra alive, right? So much more than words on paper or a podcast in your ear. Uh, What an interesting little island right there in Copenhagen. Hope I can visit someday. Seems like uh, last few years, they've gone back and forth as far as letting that experiment continue or shutting it down. Thanks for sharing details of your visit. Wonder how many other Nazis were executed off the record in Europe, uh, you know, after World War II as well. And now one more bit of comedy, some missed comedy from OG sucker Morgan McCaw, who writes, Ahoy, Captain Whiskerhorn. I'm a bit late sending this in, but during the dating game Killer Suck, you talked about how that mom had a gun in her purse and would hold it for reassurance as that shitbag was on the stand. When you mentioned the gun, I thought it was going to be important. Chekhov's gun. You don't mention a gun unless it's going to be used. I thought it was a seed for one of your misdirects. I was really expecting a point where Dana Crappa gets so frustratingly dumb that the mom pulls out the gun and blows her away. Missed opportunity. God damn it, Morgan. That is so fucking funny to me. I wish I could go back in time and add that to that story. Yeah, truly a missed opportunity. I still think about Dana Crappa here and there. Can only imagine how frustrated various prosecutors were uh, using the worst star witness I can recall ever hearing about. So thanks for planting that vision in my head of the victim's mom finally killing her. And thanks for all the messages, uh, everyone, for the show, you know, once again. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bag, just barely, this week, Meet Sex. Uh, please don't pretend the Holocaust never happened. Uh, if, you, if you still don't think it happened, just keep on sucking until you learn the truth. Magic Productions. Desperado! Why can't you come to your senses? Why you spend so much time working on fences? Forget the fences. Just come and find the gates and come through the gates and free the Ukrainian people from all the Nazis that are, you know, I don't know, maybe they have something to do with the fences as well. I just know that there's lots of offenses and uh, Nazis and that's, I'm trying to be the good guy. And I just want, Ukraine, let, let me love you. I just try to let somebody love you. It's, we all show love in different ways. And I show mine to lots of missiles and stuff. And I, I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm just a strong pony boy desperado.
She's trying to do the right thing with my cowboy hat and no shirt and lots of tight pecs and be strong for Russia. I hope you just understand the beauty. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.